what do you mean? You decided not to park here? Yeah, I just came in. I decided not to park here, so. But, well, I, I'm sorry, sir. Yeah, I decided not to. I, uh, you know, I'm not. Uh, I decided not to take the trip, as it turns out. So. Well, I'm sorry, sir. We still got to charge you the four dollars. I just pulled in here. I just fucking pulled in here. Well, but see, there's there's a minimum charge of four dollars. Uh, Long-term parking charges by the day. I guess you think you're, uh, you know, like an authority figure? That stupid fucking uniform, huh, buddy? King clip-on tie there, big fucking man, huh? You know, these are the limits of your life, man. Rule of your little fucking gate here, here. Here's your $4, you pathetic piece of shit. Hello, and welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio, and this is episode 93. And we're recording from the Pivotal Film podcast studio again. We're back, where our flags are always at half mass. In, in great... <laughs> For the death of what, our no, society? No. In great sympathy and sadness over the, the making of Police Academy Mission to Moscow. I was thinking about this the other day. If Bobcap Goldthwait leaves your film, like Steve Gutenberg leaving, yeah, sure, that, that can happen. You know, he's Gutenberg's out of control, yeah. But when Bobcat Goldthwait say he's, says he's done, you should uh, pull back. He's turned into he's, a, kind of a good director, though. He started in Unhappily Ever After. Do you ever see that? No. It's like a CW TV show or WB TV show from like the mid-90s, but it's a rip-off of When Married they still had Children. the frog? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That's a talking puppet. Uh, oh, yeah, I remember that. Bobcat Goldthwait, yeah. That was called Unhappily Ever After? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. But I remember that Talking Puppet show. Yeah, it was terrible. Yeah, I didn't see it. Well. I feel like I missed the boat. No, you missed you missed nothing on that. Well, man, TV in the 90s was, really, has, was really interesting. If he has become TV. not a bad director. Um, World's Greatest Dad is good. I'm not a big fan of his follow-up with um, Joel Murray. I don't see that. I, he, the one where, like, the guy... Has cancer and he goes across just killing. Oh yeah, people yeah, yeah. That, like no, I just watched the um, our deface society. That Barry Crimmins doc documentary that came out fairly recently, like um, before Barry Crimmins died. Like I said, doc comedian. documentary. Yeah. Well, I realized that me sa- saying doc that sounds like I sounded like a dick. Nah, I, I, <laughs> so I wait, are, are you saying our previous six episodes, seven episodes, haven't? established us as dicks already i never said the word doc instead of documentary oh i'm pretty sure i've i've shortened things that weren't very appropriate i haven't, I haven't seen that documentary either it's it was good what? um it's the comedian barry crimmins he's um he does like a lot of political stuff but he was also sexually abused as a child hmm. and um it's just really interesting and really moving and and just kind of how he's comes out of it and, and turns it directed guy. And he directed it yeah oh. and they were like best friends and Goldwit was there when he died he died of cancer um, earlier this year, um, let's talk about drinking beers, yeah. Mario. Because we have lost everybody. Because it seems like we've already been drinking beers. Oh yeah, well we have been. <laughs> uh, anyways, um, what are we drinking, Mario? We are drinking a beer from far, far away, as in about a quarter of a mile. 
away. This brewery actually isn't open to the public yet, but they started distributing this week. Is that true? It's not open to the public? Not open yet, because their parking garage is still under construction. Oh, okay. City Warren says, Tony Harp is like, listen, Tony Harp being the mayor of New Haven. He's like, listen, everyone, you need 100 parking spaces before you can open this brewery. Whatever. This is East Rock Brewery. They are specializing... In German style beers, is that that's what their specialty is going to be? Yeah, only exclusively German huh. style beers. Right. Uh, like they were doing an Oktoberfest, they're doing a Hoffenlager, which we have downstairs. We're not going to talk about that. We'll save that for another episode. But I have that beer mm-hmm. to drink tonight. Because <laughs> I'm a raging drinker, not alcoholic, just a raging drinker. You're a raging drinker. There's a difference. But uh, tonight we're going to be drinking their Weiss beer, and the head brewer of this is actually um, an old brewer for Jack's Abbey, who's mm. now kind of broken off to create his own so let's take a sip that you haven't taken already now this isn't cans unfortunately it's bottles you're gonna hear a, a clink instead of a k-tsh. might throw you off oh that was oh. good i made that with my mouth so it says on the back um i don't like it doesn't say anything on the back the german back whites is just, the back is is literally Fine. the glass it's there is no back it's a, it's a cylinder well that's true um wow blew my mind a german style wheat which is bad for me but with a sublime aroma of spice, banana, and stone fruit. I mean, definitely banana, and that's that's very much. The I'm going to be honest with banana. you, Mario. That is what is selling me on this beer, because me and wheat beers do not get along. So when it has at a all heavy banana, but flavor. that hint of banana is really kind of yeah making me keep going back for more sips. It really reminds me of have you ever had some Belgian styles? Um, yeah, Belgian style or Belgian strongs. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's very much the banana of a Belgian. Um, and not more so weedy, though. Yes, yeah, Belgian strongs have that heavy banana Maybe flavor. Maybe you haven't had a, a Belgian strong then. Cause you this... ever had six six eight from New England? Uh-uh. There, that's if you want something that has banana. I don't know if they're still distributing that. It's some of my friends' favorite beer. We'll have to get a growl. Um, if they if they, if they, make, they it. make it, yeah. Um, it's very rare now, but uh, that's very much banana. That's a very strong Belgian. Mm. Um, but yeah. And like it's got a little spiciness, uh, got banana, but doesn't have that wheat sweetness as a Hefeweizen, which you'd expect from a Weiss beer. Yeah, I mean, it's... Or a Weiss beer. It's mixed. <laughs> I can feel it. That's I my mean, I can, shitty German accent. I can feel it in... Um, I can actually kind of taste it in my nose. It's it's more of an aromatic. Mm, definitely. Than it is um, the full flavor. I, I mean, would the most... Say, would you say it's a sublime aromatic? I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to say that. I mean, but I did call a documentary a doc before, so maybe I would say it's a sublime aromatic. Um... But 5.4, it's good. It's very drinkable, sessionable, as they say now. Mm. Don't know why they say five five point four percent beers are sessionable. Everything fucking sucks, Mario. Why does it have to be sessionable? I can't just it be drinkable. Well, no, well, this is a drinkable beer because a nine percent is drinkable, drinkable, drinkable. <laughs> but it's not sessionable. Sessionable meaning you know you can sit down, have a few, and be okay. Oh my god! I could sit down, and drink like three nine percent beers, and not be okay. But call it sessionable. The average person. Probably shouldn't do that. I'm not driving after that, by the way. We, we don't support drinking and driving here on the We podcast. 100% don't support drinking and driving. We support not even driving. Just we recommend drink. don't drive at all. Just drink. Yeah. But I, I live within walking distance of everything. And so I That's true. Drink there. That makes me jealous. But, um, but yeah, no, this is good. This is really good. It is good, Mario. It gives me uh, hope for what they're going to bring in the future. They have a very big beer hall, which is going to serve pretzels. That's it. Food trucks. Uh, no, I think it's going to serve other foods. I just don't know yet because they're not open. Um, I assume they're opening mid-month. It's all September. happening now, man. I just I think around this time, 
eastrockbrewing.com. We're laying it thick. We're laying very. it thick, East Rock Brewing. On we're, our very, Twitter, we're very excited for East On Rock. our Twitter, we're going to put a hashtag. Oh, yeah, this just for happened. East Rock Brewing. By the way, we actually finally did it. We did a Twitter. I like how you keep saying we. We did it. <laughs> well, I did it on your computer. I still don't own I a laptop that computer. I am, I'm so, a conspirator in this thing. Yeah, I mean. Damn it. It got the, me. If the FBI comes for us. Twitter! Which they might, because once we create our Twitter, it instantly was locked because I tried to say, like, recording right, for yeah, episode they did 93, like motherfuckers. And uh, they didn't appreciate something about that and thought we were robots. And so we're going to go through a good three to four pages clicking images of fire hydrants. We had a robot. And street it, but... signs. We actually had a conversation about what constituted a street sign. Mm-hmm. There was one that had a very confusing amount of street signs, and we missed one. And that was... That was Scary. I feel like it was too many street signs, yeah, and I, I was, was suspicious of it. I mm-hmm. thought it was a trap. I think, I think they they don't know what street signs they're are, and us. they're just getting like a voting. Well, I, I was concerned signs. when we kind of got back into our pivotal film studios so easily. I was oh, wondering no. what the catch was, and apparently they're watching us. No, and the asking us about that street street sign. Yeah. Uh, All right. But anyways, East Rock Brewing, the Wise Beer, very solid. Okay, so now that we're drinking, uh, we can talk about some of the movies that we saw this last week. Um, we both saw The Little Stranger. Which um, we'll be talking about in a minute. But Mario also saw Searching, the I new did. John Cho internet vehicle. Um, you want to give us a quick rundown on your thoughts of that? Basically, John Cho plays David. His 16-year-old daughter, Margot, goes missing. Um, and from there, you're kind of, to me, almost paint by numbers. Uh, mystery movie develops with its usual plots and twists, but everything is told in the framework of a computer screen mm-hmm. um, and just using the technology. And there's interesting things that are done with this. I saw Unfriended. I didn't see Unfriended Dark Web. Unfortunately, the first Unfriended didn't strike me enough that I had to rush out to theaters, <laughs> even though it had two different endings. Oh. They actually sent two different endings to, to cinemas, which wasn't actually talked about a lot. So you had to see it twice if you wanted yeah, to see no, both endings? Nobody, nobody, nobody did. Jesus. Um, but there's just not a lot to say about it. I mean, it's really been critically well received, and it does its premise well. There's a lot of like neat little plays done with um technology in general. It's kind of like a fun little subplot that you barely noticed. I saw a bit of it, and I had like actually read on Reddit. Mm-hmm. There's an alien invasion subplot going on in like the background of things. So they do a lot of interesting things, um, with the technology. You know. Mm-hmm. With, but it ultimately feels like a gimmick. There's a lot of instances in it where he's making phone calls or, or searching for things, and it just doesn't feel authentic. It just feels like it's fit into this envelope. Yeah. I feel like this is something that might have been better served on the internet. Yeah, maybe like an ARG, like an alternate reality sort of game, yeah. or like something like a web series of some sort. But, I mean, that's been done for a better part of a decade now. Yeah. Um, John Cho's really good in it. I'm glad to see him continue to get more work and that this film did pretty well in cinemas. Um, I think he's a really good actor. If you are in the desperate need to watch a John Cho movie, um, I would say skip searching or watch it eventually, uh, but run out and see Columbus, which Mm. is a movie he did last year, which I think was fucking amazing. One of the top three films of the year uh, for me. A really subtle, soft movie. This one is, is good, but some of the twists are nonsense, um, especially the main twist. It just doesn't get to me. Uh, and there's so many like 
playful kind of cute things it does like it it i don't want to spoil too much of it just for people who are going to see it but you'll notice those mm. twists and turns like those foreshadowing it does and it isn't clever to me it's just cute well i feel like a lot of the reviews i've read and i haven't been, haven't read a ton of them but made they kind of skipped talking about the movie and talked and focused instead on how they use the subject of technology and i guess that's an honest attempt even yeah. though it strikes me as being like you said being very gimmicky and just yeah and the director anish chognati um he you know he directed it and co-wrote it with sebahan and, and, they, and they both do a lot of good work with it it's done on a very micro budget i think it's like 1.1 million dollars according cool. to, to the the writer on reddit um and so they do a lot with little and they try to do something interesting with it and i think it quasi works but mm. it's just so i guess it's enough. something it's something it's something that if it had been met with like middling reviews or, or mid-range reviews i don't think my expectation because i was expecting something a little more because mm-hmm. not only did it get like good reviews it's actually got pretty strong reviews like on metacritic and everything um and it's just it's good but it's not anything really worthwhile mm. um it, it's not anything that you need to see with immediacy well, that was, I mean, it's, that brings us to our second movie because we had this conversation. Well, yeah, because initially we had a couple days about ago, like seeing a, Searching, searching. Uh, and being the movie of our discussion. And I was like, we don't need to do that. Yeah, and which I was perfectly happy with because I kind of sensed, you know, I'm generally anti-technology. Depromessing. As it is. I am also ardently <laughs> anti-depromessing. Um, so I was excited to uh, go see um, Lenny Abrahamson's Little Stranger. Um, or Which I think we should move into The now. Little Stranger. Um, is really kind of billed as this kind of, as a gothic horror film. It's kind of, it's how it's advertised anyway. The the poster, you know, with Dom Hall Gleason's face covered by some piece of something. Mm-hmm. Um, looks vaguely sinister. Um, so yeah, it stars Dom Hall Gleason as Dr. Faraday, um, who is a, uh, a doctor in this uh, small English town. Yeah, post-World War II. Post-World War II, yep. I think it's around maybe 1947, 1949. Yeah, they don't... Do they, they say it's around 30 years after uh, 1919. 19, yeah, so um, he goes back to um, Hundreds Hall, which is a, um, a really grand English estate that he went to as a child and was really over overwhelmed by, um, and the house has fallen into complete disarray. Um, I wouldn't say complete disarray. It's It's tired. No, they say it's it's like falling apart, and it has fallen. I mean, and it clearly has. There's stuff yeah. growing up the walls. I mean, it, well, I think, everything's I think there's dirty. There's broken windows. I think there's a point to be made with the ending. That's that is to say, hasn't fallen completely into disarray. But we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, but I mean, they makes a point of uh, that. Yeah. We're, we're kind of going to minor details here, but like when they walk up the stairs, like the banisters are all oh, like yeah, scarred yeah. and scuffed and things like that. When he goes there, he encounters Carolyn and Roderick, who are sister and brother, played by Ruth Wilson and Will Poulter, respectively. Uh, Roderick has um, was in the war, and uh, he was in a submarine. They said, or he was in yeah, some he kind was, of. He was just a. He, I know he's a Royal Air Force. Yeah, so and he um, sustained burns over much of his body. He has some um, some leg injuries, um, and he goes there. Um, to treat him and then starts working, you know, he, he brings some experimental electricity things with him and he, you know, starts working on him. Um, their mother played by Charlotte Rampling, Angela, um, 
you know, there's not a lot to say in the beginning of the movie. She's just yeah, kind no, of hovering there in the background. I think a lot of the critical... This movie's been met with pretty mid-row, almost negative reviews. Yeah, yeah it seems to be hedging into the negative and category. I think the negative reviews are definitely saying how slow of a film it is. And if you're in the mood for a gothic horror film that, you know, builds tension throughout, this is not at all your feature. I think this was this was definitely a example of portal advertisement. I, I think this is a film that shouldn't have been billed as much as a gothic horror. Like, mm. definitely the last act ramps up into a gothic horror, but it's it's not at all the point to me. Well, it seems like they really wanted to bill it as a kind of new, you know, The Others or something like that. Which it is, there's, yeah. Which it's not. Um, and even in the ending, um, it, it, it doesn't, you know, reveal itself to be anything like that. Um, you're right. It is so, it is so slow moving, but not in, not in a bad way. No, I think not, in a not way even that nearly a bad way. Where nothing me. is, nothing is happening. There's something always happening, even if it's not, you know, major. And, I, you know, I, and think I know any kind of horror, it's funny because they do, I, there was a preview for The Nun before this <laughs> and it kind of operates in that wait, same. Wait for of, that. We're going to do a special episode just special on The Nun. Episode. <laughs> but We're not. It operates we are in that not same doing kind that. Of, you know, that darkness, it's really moody, it's really atmospheric, but then there's, you know, the jump at the end of the preview, and there's no jumps here. No, none of them. I mean, and even when it gets a little heavy, it builds up to heaviness. It's not all of a sudden like, whoa, it was heavy. And, you know, me and you talked about this off air. You don't think Lenny Abramson is the best director. He's a fine director. I think he's a perfectly competent director. I don't think he push, pushes anything over the line into real... Into, to making something truly great. Yeah, and I like I disagree with that. I really like his direction here. Um, I don't think it's not his strongest directed film. I still say Room is the strongest directed film. I really loved Room. Mm-hmm. Um, Frank is all right. Uh, Adam and Paul's good. Uh, his first feature or his first major feature. Uh, never saw Garage, but I think what is works so much for me here is a lot of the moments done in building tension um, that don't necessarily use the hallmarks of tension building that you would notice in other horror films or psychological thrillers. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's an early scene. uh, It's a dinner party uh, where... It's a dinner scene. There's an early scene, a dinner party where Will Poulter's character has invited over um, people to basically facilitate a real estate deal. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's not anything really done that's off kilter. I mean, out of the ordinary in terms of plot contrivances. There's, you know, Will Poulter kind of says he feels like something wrong is going to happen. That's the only sign of story beat that you get. Mm-hmm. However, I think there's this focus in slightly off-framing shots. Um, you know, breaking that rule of thirds. He does, Lenny Abramson talks about doing a lot of like really tight close-up shots on Dom Held Leeson's face using a particular lens just to create like this unsettling vision of him. Yeah. And it, it, everything in that scene, just the, the mannerisms used in the actors, especially Bruce Wilson and Dom Held Leeson, just kind of build this tension. You know something horrific is going to happen, even though it's never stated. And then just like a beat where the girl gets bitten by a dog, dog or you yeah. at least think she got bitten by a dog. I think she got bitten by the dog. Yeah. It's, you know, obviously the end says there's supernatural forces at play. In some degree, but 
But they're supernatural forces that seem to be inspiring actual violence. Yeah, exactly. More so than the supernatural forces... Compelling violence. Compelling violence. Um, and then that, that, the scene that follows is just an extremely gruesome, bloody scene in a movie that's been very reserved mm. until then. And this is just, you know, a moment that, that kind of hits the key of, of the violence. is, is so yeah. sudden and so shocking and jarring. And then it kind of goes back into itself. Well, one of the things I would criticize the movie for, but again, this is one of those... When I was watching this movie, I was like, this movie is terribly interesting without actually being terribly interesting, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. No, absolutely. I think, um, and one of the things I, I would think completely agree with that. It sentiment. leans on Don Hall Gleason's face just tremendously oh. to carry whatever the tone of this scene is supposed to be. And while you're watching it, it's kind of jarring because he would go from being perfectly pleasant and, you know, an invited guest and smiling to being just really um, dour and, and, and grim, you know, and not saying anything and just kind of standing statuesque in a corner, like observing what's happening here. Um, but I think, it, I think it, it, it simultaneously works and is very obviously a kind of crutch that he's that's and, and that brings me up to like the other thing that I kept occurring to me is like he's Abrahamson seems really good at, at building the atmosphere and, and, and setting the mood, but I'm not sure he ever knows what to do with it. So the mood never the mood never breaks or goes into another mood and you never reach a kind of catharsis ever. It just kind of stays in this very heightened sense of well, oh, it's this this is an odd place to be. There's a there's a strange feeling around here, but it 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 seems to be pushed like the you know directorially towards its conclusion rather than ha- having all those elements work together and seem to push themselves into it. Do you well, know I what think, I mean? I I can see that. I think Abrahamson definitely leans on his actors, um, and luckily for him in this feature in the some room, good ones, it yeah. works. Uh, you know. Charlotte Rampling is, is, is probably the weakest of the well, bunch. When you see but her, you just like, know what she's going to be like. Yeah. Um, but Will Poulter's just continues to be one of the better Very good, actors. Very good, yeah. Uh, Gleason's just, like, he carries this entire film. Not necessarily he that he's the best part. Um, it's just the fact that Abrahamson, like, says, you're going to carry this film, and he carries it. You know, not to spoil too much, but he ends up basically not being the most wholesome of protagonists. Um and early on, there's nothing kind of mentioned in that. And, you know, it just, it, it does. It does, like, Abraham even admits this in an interview, that he just, you know, wanted to focus on Domino Gleason's face, and he does that. And that's how I think it really works in that, that scene that I mentioned in Building Tensions, where the girl Oh, gets yeah, bit. and it works a bunch of times. It's the fact that his face starts out as kind of like, he's, he feels a little awkward and out of place, because there's a big class system discussion that this carries right. throughout this entire film. Um, but as the girl starts, like, breaking conventions and rules... Uh, you can see him kind of like his face shift. Well, the and, same thing and, happens. And things this unnatural kind of. And the same thing happens gaze. later at that at the dance that they're at, mm-hmm. where they start out having a really good time because she's reserved. If we're and... looking if we're looking at it from from that perspective, um, the rules are set, the roles are being played, um, and then all this you know they're introducing. He introduces her to another um, to the other uh, doctor in his practice. Introduces her to his wife. And then the wife introduces her to somebody she already knows. Yeah. And they go ahead and dance together on, on the dance floor. And all of a sudden, and it's not even like that um, Faraday's countenance 
is is changed. Um, it's not just his face, and it's not just his demeanor. The whole mo- mood of the movie seems to change. It's like from one moment to another, the whole movie has shifted into like, well, oh, now like, what is this? There's some smart measures, I think, in that dance sequence in terms of sound design. Like the sound kind of echoes a bit more. Well, that's um, another thing that I noticed too, that they actually do that a lot in this movie where the sounds seem to carry from one scene to another mm-hmm. rather than being just kind of dropped into this new scene. It's, it's an extended, um, yeah. you know. And what I find fascinating about that is the fact that I, I think a big theme of this movie is kind of, you know, just just carrying over from the room and from some of the things you've heard from here seems like the agency of, of women being tested by men around them. And, mm. and Faraday's definitely like, you know, Donald Gleason's character is just a class act in terms of like gaslighting um, and convincing Ruth Wilson is like this very, you know, her Carolyn's a very dour character at first, a little kind of re- very reserved, but as that dance sequence shows, she has agency to her and she has this authority that she then kind of reveals later on yeah. as Gleason tries to push his will upon her because all he really wants is the house. He doesn't give a... F- you can... I, at least, I took from that day, doesn't care about her. He, he, well, we wants, can, he wants the status. And I, I, I think well, that overall, we'll, that negative conclusion... We yeah. will get to that um, point, but yes. But like that scene, I think, works incredibly well just because it does build that, that sense of... That's, that's kind of like the turn. Before then, you kind of can tell he's, he's awkward and out of place, maybe a little... Yeah. But I think uncomfortable. That is where you go. No, this man has some sort of purpose, and that like I think that does well. Is like it it kind of naturally builds Gleason's Faraday to be like this semi unreliable narrator early on, but then kind of turns it at that moment to go. No, this is somebody you cannot trust at all. But this so this I mean this is another comment that I'll make on the direction. So he's got this really nice nicely directed scene with a lot going on, a lot of subtext, um, a lot of. Um, carefully used you know um sound references and images uh for you to kind of puzzle over but then it just digresses into like a 10 minute drive home through the rain and he's like we can't do anything we can't do anything more interesting here we yeah. can't i mean obviously like a rainy night in you know an old 1940s car you know in the dark at 2 a.m with the windows kind of fogging up and all this other stuff is very moody things but i feel like there's and especially after seeing the whole movie, I feel like there was an opportunity to make a really interesting movie out of this. There's, and he's there's, only made a, a pretty interesting movie. There's some tightness issues, definitely, with the film um, in terms of pacing. I think the scene that follows on the drive home and, you know, Faraday kind of staring at her while she's sleeping or kind of looking off, you know, works in a shorter kind of phrase, but, mm-hmm. like, has extended as it is, it doesn't work. I well, think the just... scene that follows that, like, awkward sex scene yeah yeah yeah. that works really well to kind of like really firmly establish faraday as this really weird guy overall um just how mechanical he is and how like he doesn't really know what he's doing in the sense of like he kind of sees somebody yeah he isn't you know um he isn't it's not so much i don't think it's so much that he doesn't know what he wants but so much that he doesn't want to do what he's doing just let me know when you're ready to get into what that i I think i think we're i think we're about the time that we've been kind of like circling the issue i think we should really delve into the main crux of and why, also, why I thought this film was worthy of discussion. So let's, I mean, oh, it's totally worthy of discussion. I think More we, so than searching, guys. I, yeah. See Little Stranger. It only made $460,000 this weekend. Oh, so the quick story. So, so I love how we're talking about, this would be the podcast that talks about the $460,000 movie over like, neither of us has seen Crazy Rich Asians. <laughs> no, I'm fine. Which you probably 
should have seen it for nah. forgotten viewer listeners. If people, if someone wants us to see it, they can pay us a bunch of money and we'll go see it and say nice things I about mean, it. You can pay us a ticket and a beer and I'll go see it. Yeah, sure. That's um, a lot of money. It's thirteen dollars. I went to see it. Uh, it's Tuesday at the North Haven Cinema, where I generally do most of my movie scenes. If not in, uh, at the Criterion Cinema in New Haven, um, you know it's matinee. Tuesday is six dollars and ten cents. Yeah. Um, everyone in line before me. There's six people in line before me went to see the Meg. <laughs> and see, I was the only person in the whole theater oh, seeing Little yourself? Stranger. You lucky son of It man. was very good. I went to go see this with my mom on Sunday. Did she like it? Yeah, no, she really liked it. But, you know, I had the same issue. I only had another couple besides me and my mom there. My mom aren't, aren't a couple. Uh, there was one couple and me and but my it mom. Has, it has a full day of screenings. It's got yeah. its own theater. I mean... For two weeks it does. Yeah, but even that's, you know, that's pretty good. Well, yeah, it follows up Room, which is pretty... I think people expected this another kind of prestige film and got... Clearly, oh. I mean, I feel like when I was watching this, you know... it, it A can, genre film. We can get into it in, in a second. But in the, another movie that came out last year, around roughly the same time that had a similar problem was Mother, where the studio clearly wanted to bill it as something else, and then people saw the movie and was like, but it's not that... We did see Mother in almost a sold-out theater, though, which was interesting. Especially those... But I, saw, I was talking about this earlier with somebody. You remember like there was like two 12-year-olds at the Mother, and they watched like the entire thing all mm-hmm. the way through, and they seemed invested? Well, remember the... That was the most interesting thing I've well, there was, seen in Actually, the there was three interesting things in that movie. There was them, there was the couple next to us with the laying down, um, and then there was that um, family that came in with like a little girl. Yeah. Like and it was a ten o'clock show, and then I think the trailer started playing, and they obviously were just like, "Whoa, this is the wrong theater!" Yeah, and they, they just, just ran realized, away. Yeah. And we both were looking over, like, "Is that? A, that's a little, they're carrying a little girl yeah. up to the back row." But there was there was another couple that had like ten year old, twelve year old kids, and they just stayed and watched the whole thing. Well, there was, the kids seemed invested. There was that, and there was the Dunkirk thing. We went to see Dunkirk at like a eleven o'clock and showing, and there was two twelve. Yeah, it was all teenagers. It was us and teenage girls. Yeah, to see Harry Styles. Um, um, but I think no, that, Kenneth Branagh. No, yeah, that's, that's right. That's all Kenneth Branagh. I forgot. Um, so we saw it with a total of two other people. Yeah, three other people. If we, we include your mom. No one's going to see this movie. Um, and I think the reason is the payoff is weird it's and a, interesting and and really subtle. As you said, it's a Henry James. It is such. A, I mean, it's a very. It's a Henry James esque, you know, class deconstruction. Class deconstruction, but using and I, I 100% agree with you about the class thing. But I also I think it's interesting that they attack the class thing through um, the use of a person's subconscious. Yes. So they've abandoned. They've abandoned their sub, their subconscious. Well, the, Faraday the, has abandoned his subconscious in this house. The the plot conceit and, and the kind of turn at the end is it turns out that there is some sort of entity. Uh, you know, quick spoilers. It doesn't. It really, honestly, doesn't matter. It's kind of. I think it's kind of well, very punctuated s- early on. Um, you're either going to see this movie or you're not going to see this. Movie. <laughs> most likely, you know you're I mean? not going to. Um, his. He does this thing, has a child, where he sneaks into the house, that's kind of off limits. He breaks off a piece well, so of the his, ornate... His mother cord. used to work in the house. Yes. And he they had gone gets there for invited a back to it for a party, and he's just overwhelmed by, you know, the grandeur of this house. And, the, and overwhelmed by the, 
the life he assumes that the people inside the house are living. And he had been somebody who, you can get the idea, childhood very much followed rules, followed controls, and, you know, he just has this urge to go past the border where it's not allowed, you know, part of the house is locked off. It's still, this is still in its grand state. And he breaks off a piece of acorn. From like a just, mirror, like the yeah. molding of a mirror. It does like this kind of weird, dumb, shaky cam thing when it does that. They do I, like, he does like that shaky cam thing. Which I don't think works. Um, and then the mother just slaps him. And when, you know, whether it's not the, the way he breaks it off or when he gets hit, literally part of his consciousness breaks off and remains in the house. And so he ends Faraday, the lead, the living character, is the poltergeist that is haunting the house and torturing all these people and murdered. You could kind of get the idea that he caused the girl's sickness. Um, they mentioned that the girl, the long dead girl, who you think may be the ghost or spirit haunting. Yeah, that MacGuffin. She is, um, she starts getting sick that night. And then as the movie goes on, he takes his subconscious sort of rids the house of the other people kind of as he feels squatting in his. For, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, so, I mean, he has that conversation with that other doctor about his subconscious, which I was wondering if the studio made him put that in. Yeah, that, that feels like it's so um, on those. Because it's exactly what happened. But I think the the twist there, not even the twist, but to go a little deeper into it, is it's he's really kind of abandoned his baser instincts. And now he has, you know, his baser instincts are stuck in the house. Um, but... Because his he, wickedness, kind of. Yeah, his, I mean, uh, I would love to kind of analyze. I'm not so, I'm not so well versed in Freud that I can kind of, you know, express exactly from a, a Freudian standpoint what is being expressed here. But he's definitely left a, a massive piece it's of Jungian, I think. Is it? No, I think it's no. There's an id, the super guess, ego yeah, thing I guess here, maybe. But I think um, it's like more explicated in in Jung. Maybe. Let's cut that part out. We'll, to, we'll, we'll follow up. Um, the idea that he has. If you relate it to what happened in the car, where he's just kind of, or even in any other situation where he seems super, he seems very happy and content and moves immediately to being moody and, and, and gloomy and, and very serious, is that he just kind of doesn't have, he doesn't have a, a compass anymore. He doesn't know how to be. He doesn't know, like from a personality standpoint, how to address the daily struggles of, of living as a person. And see, this is where I, I might do a little pushback on you. Yeah, yeah, because I'm, I'm just talking out loud. Oh, no, absolutely. I, I'm not saying you're wrong. You're fucking, fucking saying pushing wrong. back. I think he was never that person. And I think this is what Which makes this film. I don't think he was ever the person that had the capability of being natural, of acting in a sort of human way. Mm-hmm. I think he always was this really broken, weird character. Hmm. And the thing I found most interesting about it, and I know if I entirely agree with it is this film its conceit in the end is that Faraday wants the house he wants to have belonged in this stat stratus of, of yeah, yeah, society yeah, yeah. and I think the film makes underlines the point that he doesn't belong not necessarily well, he it's says potentially that. not necessarily I'd say that's a class thing because I think they make a, a, a point of saying somebody like Betty who's from a lower class but still very much fits in the house she gets to have like a room later upstairs so it's it's i don't think it's so much saying the socio-economical stratification but i think it's saying he is of a certain class of people or he has a certain personality that would never allow him to have that kind of world maybe not so much in the sense of, of wealth because he's doing okay he's a doctor um but just everything that he feels the house encompasses this feeling of of worth and reputation he doesn't deserve because he lacks 
he's a sociopath, I think, in the end, ultimately. He's, well, he lacks that empathy. Yeah, I mean... And I think he's always lacked that. I don't... Is there anything in the movie that you would point to that says that, like, he's always lacked that empathy? Because I think there's a... I think there's a... I think there's a taint on him, and it could come from two things. I suppose it could come from that, like, his sociopathic instincts, um, that lack of empathy. But he also makes a lot of mention of the idea that he doesn't belong. And it's maybe one of those things where... Because his mother was a maid, and I forget what they mentioned his father having done. Yeah, um, I, I wish I could fucking remember it. Um, but that he's just, he's an outsider. And the idea that he, perpetually an outsider, and the idea that he won't move to London. He's developed this, you know, electro, um, electric shock current thing for um, muscle rehabilitation. Um, and, you know, he's offered a position in London. At the, and they're like, oh, are you a Extremely family? prestigious, yeah. Right, and yeah. they're like, oh, are you a family man? And he's like, no. And they're like, oh, then why then why stay? And he's clearly staying because of the house. But you also get the sense that he knows that he wouldn't belong there. He and wouldn't see, belong in London. He wouldn't belong as part of the, as you know, part of a prestigious school. He wouldn't belong with, with, with recognition. But see, here's, here's why I'd say you get the example that he himself is always kind of that broken individual. Um, there's that kind of look and glance of animity he gives towards Susan, the daughter who's, died years ago when she blocks him from the picture mm-hmm. and i think that's kind of a nice little subtle take on the fact that he's always had these like this sense of dispassion and jealousy kind of bored in, in in his sociopathy but i think also in the end um and this is why i kind of like say about the house being in disarray um you know he's his two parts are kind of still divided. It still shows, you know, it kind of does this on-the-nose image of him as a child haunting the third floor versus him as an adult on the first floor. But you can still say the two pieces are supposed to be somewhat then together. Mm-hmm. But the house is destroyed by that point. By the end of the movie, the house when is ruined. When yeah. he has ownership of the house. You can only assume he's he's bought the house or somehow been given it. And well, the house is, is totally in disarray. If it was in disarray before... See, that's why I don't think it's necessarily in disarray. I think it was just tired and needed upkeeping, and there's so well, many so people. Well, if so you, if you, I looked at it from a Henry James perspective. If you look at it from Henry James' perspective, that would be in disarray. Like, that house would be, yeah. that house would be ruined. I mean, that house has, there's a, a book, a novel he wrote called The American, um, which takes place at the turn of, of, you know, the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, but there's a, there's a rich family that lives in a grand old um, French house, um, but the family has no money anymore. It's like literally the exact same thing. They can't pay to keep the house up. So the house just is quietly, slowly falling apart while the family almost tries to prop it up with the prestige of their name. Mm. Um, to point out another problem related to this that I kind of had with the movie is um, the unreliable narrator thing, I don't think fully works because we're getting met we're getting his memories when we see him as a child yes um i wish it was clearer and then again this is a problem with the unreliable narrator i'm not a big unre- unreliable narrator guy i don't tend to yeah, love I, I, things I usually, that have an unreliable narrator i usually narrator. think you need a and i think you always need some sort of spoke into that it's got to be a grounding grounding a grounding force I kind of tend to, when you think back of the movie, my instinct is to agree with one of the things about the idea that he was always jealous because, you know, he gets really fixated on the picture. That, you know, Susan 
that he finds this old picture that he was in the background of and Susan is standing in front of him and um, um, Carolyn, you know, Ruth Wilson's character says like, oh, every, Susan was always standing in front of everybody and um, yeah, you get the sense that he wanted, he wanted to belong. He saved that medal that, you know, they gave him on that day. Um, you get the sense that he always really wanted to belong but because you're only ever seeing his memory of it, you don't know what's this when he div- when he was divided because we're assuming there was a division because there's you yeah. know that yeah, I mean, that movie tells you that there is a division right. so we'll just accept that you don't know what the undivided self felt because mm-hmm. we're getting a divided perspective of that think, undivided child I think there's a purposeful am- ambiguity there to a bit to a degree well I think it's to keep it ambiguous and I think it works to an extent I. Because it works so well, I want it to work a little better. Yeah, you know I, would, I, mean? I would agree. I, I don't think this is a perfect movie by any means. I think it's it's a movie that deserves discussion because it's much better than it's being given credit for. I mean, I liked it better. This is hot take. Hot take Tuesday here. I liked it better Sa- than her Saturday. We're recording on Tuesday, guys. <laughs> I liked it better than um, Hereditary. Still haven't seen Hereditary. But. I liked it a lot better than Hereditary. I think it's a more honest movie. Uh, I think its mood setting works better. I think it's significantly less pretentious. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe because I don't like watching people saw their own heads off with wire that just was acquired out of nowhere. Maybe I don't like... Horrible computer-generated effects of Tony Collette's headless body floating into a treehouse. Maybe I'm the only one. Um, but this movie seems, like I said, this movie seems a more honest expression yeah, there's, there's, of there's, of a similar mood. There's an authenticity to it, and definitely a, a better sense of, um, not not comparing it to Hereditary, just because I haven't seen that, but a, a sense of of artistry that I think is is interesting. Um, I especially like his his take on kind of like the gothic estate. Like it's it's not all gleamy black and grays. It's a lot of like faded blues. So it's still of a posh like background, but it's been kind of faded right. over the ages. And a, I, I appreciate that 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 wasn't just like kind of didn't just fully lean into its conceit. It's not an Edgar Allan Poe story. No. So it's the sky is rarely ever dark. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's there's a the sun is right. coming in a lot rarely of the time. Yeah. It's it rains a couple times. Right. Um, <laughs> but just like naturally, it, there's. There's a Christmas scene where it, there's green outside still, you know, and the only snowy scene has just barely any snow on the ground. Yeah, um, it's an, it's definitely. But you know what movie kept coming to mind when I was watching it is um, the Phantom Wayne's World. Yeah, <laughs> Wayne's World Two. Oh, even better. <laughs> um, no, it was something like Phantom Thread, mm-hmm. where you're dealing in roughly the same kind of period. London. Yeah, around the same same. Same year too. It doesn't hit the same. They're not looking to hit the same notes. They're not looking to make the same movie, but you can kind of see that they're contemporaries. That they're contemporaries in that if Paul Thomas Anderson had this material, he would have like worked the shit out of the mood way more so than um, there would have been no narration. What would Lawrence Kasdan have done? (sighs) Gina Davis would have played. (laughs) Charlotte Rampling's character. <laughs> there would have been a, that big black dog would have been a corgi. Yeah, and of course, you know, like she would have convinced him to like reunite himself with 
probably a number at a hot topic or something like that to, to keep it updated. <laughs> well, that's what I mean. We didn't talk about that part of the ending. Do you think that do you think that Faraday is aware of the split? Yes. And do you think his ultimately. attempt to grab I think there's a control where- of the house is in reality a kind of vaguely noble attempt to wreck like reconcile this other part of himself noble to himself noble in the sense that you can't fault him for wanting to be whole but you can fault him for being complicit in the the deaths of two people sure and and then has his broken self fully saying no she was unsound mind even though you don't get any pretense that he believes but the the desire to be a whole self is at least semi-worthy no, I, I think he's fully aware of what he's doing. And I think there's kind of that bit of an awareness of his like broken self in the ending shot where he kind of like looks up the banister. He's constantly looking up to the third floor too. Yes. Um, so there, there is that realization. And that's why I kind of think establishes Faraday as a whole as a piece of fucking garbage. Mm. I think he's always, I think that's kind of interesting is, is the fact that, you know, you establish early on kind of this very typical, boring outsider Going into, you know, I'm a big fan of like gothic horror mm-hmm. novels and gothic horror stories and, and films. And you always have those outside individuals coming into this very horrific scene. Which they and talk about. And narrating it afterwards and narrating their, their ideas afterwards. And that's what happens here early on. You kind of expect that kind of paint by numbers story. And then instead it turns out this person coming from the outside is the, for, the force itself, that driving force. Um, that's what I find interesting. I like I said it's it's not a perfect film by any means. There's a lot of better movies that have come out this year. Are I there? think there's some better. There's movies. at least like four or five better. I still haven't seen Black Klansmen, but I'm assuming that's a better now, because by everyone, including you and other people I respect, having that opinion. Um, it's not as good as First Reform's better. Well, yeah, First Reform better. You're Never Really Here is better. Unsane's yep. around the same. Sorry to bother you was better, but it's. But it, it doesn't a, deserve to be buried like it's been, in my opinion. No, I, I, although and I don't want to make the case. That my it's big a, criticism is they they keep saying about how plain Ruth Wilson is, and like, oh, too bad she's not much of a looker. Guys, come on, we can't make this be our criteria for who's attractive. If Ruth Wilson's considered plain and unattractive, I don't well, really that's, appreciate. That's, that's just the weird, ridiculous. That's the weird. <laughs> it's another interesting thing about like modern movies is that you can't be. You either have to be someone we know really well or be just very standard issue for someone to say, in, even in the movie, that they're pretty. So they keep trying to cast really striking people as, as like, non-striking people. Yeah, and it's like, come on. Like, oh, look, look at her. Her dress is a little bad. Her dress oh, is a man. little baggy. Oh, jeez. Oh, so what? I don't, what was everyone She speaks at? her mind occasionally. Yeah, she doesn't seem to be super into the advertising guy. Yeah, who works oh. in America. What a weirdo! I mean, they're just if you're gonna if you're gonna cast someone who isn't Charlotte Gainsborough's not doing anything. <laughs> she might there might be a Lars von Trier movie in the works. <laughs> Maybe he's just dropping rocks on her now. New movie. <laughs> That's the whole movie. Um, it's a really interesting movie. I think more people should have seen it. No, I agree. I, I think there. I mean. There's any number of reasons why people were dropping the ball in this movie, and it's going to be totally forgotten at awards time. But I mean, I don't think necessarily needs to be remembered at awards time. I don't think it does either. But I'm just as the way the way that people generally go back to pick up a movie. Um, I think if it got, 
a nomination for something, people will be like, huh, what's that? But yeah. now it's going to be relegated to being on Netflix in, you know, eight months. And people will see it and think, you know, oh, what's this movie? And then they'll watch it for 20 minutes and be like, nothing is happening. I'm going to turn it off. Yeah. I'm going to watch another stand special. That's unfortunate. All right. Um, so let's take a break and we will get back to our number 93s. All right, so before we jump into 93, um, we just need to explain a few things about the, what's the going to be happening going forward. Yeah, going forward. Um, so until this point, all of our films have been exclusive to our lists. Yes. In other words, films that are on my list, I've not been on Tom's list. Films on Tom's list are garbage and have not been on my <laughs> list. And so luckily we've been able to have a nice, good conversation about both of those films. This time, however, and going forward several other times, there's going to be a film that's on one of our lists that's going to appear later on the other person's list. So Later meaning closer to number one. Exactly. Um, so in this instance, Tom is going to explain some of the reasons he feels so strongly about his 93, why it's so close to his heart, why it's pivotal. However, the more intellectual discussion, my conversation about my feelings on that film are going to be withheld for now. And we're going to have a longer, more in-depth discussion in the future, in the far, far future. Far, far future. Yeah. I mean, I think it's especially true of this movie where I have a lot to say. I have a lot of intellectual things to say about it. Um, So, I mean, this week's 93 for me may be a little short, uh, my 93 is the Coen Brothers 1996 film Fargo. Um, you know, written, directed, produced. Oh, wait. By the it's Coens. not Argo? No, it's oh, not. Oh, okay. Argo. Yeah, I, I can talk about this. <laughs> Just fucking kidding. No, we wouldn't be friends if it was Argo. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. The Argo thing kind of, kind of knocked my socks off. I don't really know what to do with myself. <laughs> Where do we go from Argo? Who knows? Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think part of the thing, part of the reason why this movie is on my list is part of the reason I'm kind of fumbling for a way to start to start talking about it. Well, um, I think if you have intellectual reasons and that's very deeply no, no, connected no. to your pivotal well, I think that's, aspects, then we can, you can talk about that now. I'm more talking about from a like discussion of like a general discussion of plot that we normally do. Like, who's in it? Who plays what character? Mm-hmm. I feel like this is one of those movies where you kind of know who is in it. You know that Francis McDormand played, you know, Marge. You know that William H. Macy played Jerry Lundergaard. You know, St- you can see Steve Buscemi's mustachioed face, you know, laughing. And his legs. And his, and his leg getting shoved into a wood chipper yeah. with, a, with a log. Um, you can see... Peter Stormare's kind of lazy stare as he just sits and looks at stuff. Um, even John Carroll Lynch's kind of hunched over, arm crossed, head cocked to the side, frowny face is kind of embedded into film culture. His, now. his audition for the Drew Carey show here. <laughs> um, I mean, even people like, um, you know, the Steve, the Mike Yanagita scene with Mike played by Steve Park. Um, it's all kind of, you know, I do, it makes, it seems weird to explain all the digressions and like the plot movements and stuff, because this has think, become such a, an archetypal film now where people are replicated after Fargo came out, people were just making 
different versions of Fargo for a really long time, yeah. and it's just ingrained oh, now in film culture. Maybe even a TV series about it. Right. Um, and I think definitely talking about those, like, breaking down the plot and the structure and everything can will be a huge part of our conversation. But I think a huge part of our conversation, I mean, even when we have that like conversation later. But even when we have that conversation later. It's hard to kind having of. Having to kind of, I don't feel like it's even necessary. I used to go through this, me and Mario used to work together. Um at a at a, a the Southern Connecticut State University bookstore where we, we were the owners and operators. We were owners and operators, um, and we would have to operate of Southern Connecticut, not just the bookstore. <laughs> All the of whole Southern chunk, Connecticut. Yeah. Connecticut. We not had the University County, just the, and New Haven yeah, County. That's us. That's me and Mario. You didn't know that. That's how we can afford to do this podcast and our swanky digs. Um, you know, so you would show people. You'd have to show someone how to use a register. You'd have to show someone some kind of a process. You know what I mean? But in my head, one of the problems I've always had with doing stuff like that was the idea that I already I knew how to do it so well. It was such a it was just kind of stuck in my head that I didn't have to think about it anymore. It was just like a muscle memory that it was hard for me to kind of um, step back and process it enough to say you now you do this. And then the next step is to do this. And then the next step is to do this. And then you really need to do that with 18 to 21-year-olds yeah, in a bookstore. It's, it's very necessary. But um, I, I feel like the same thing is happening here, where I just want to be like, my number 93 movie is Fargo. End of end of My number 93 is? You obviously, you should, I assume that all people that watch movies understand why Fargo would be on anybody's list. But, but, and that's, but I think for me, that's, so the next couple of movies on my list are those kinds of movies for me. Where when I saw them, I don't remember the specific scenario in which I saw Fargo. It was definitely after I saw The Big Lebowski. Um, it was in a period where I had seen... Fargo was the was the first Coen Brothers movie for me, actually. Oh, was it? It was mm-hmm. the first one you saw? So I saw Big Lebowski. No, incorrect. Hudsucker Proxy. Okay. Then... See, and I didn't see any of those early ones until after The Big Lebowski. I actually didn't see most of the early ones until after I saw The Man Who Wasn't There, which was just, I mean, I saw that. I remember seeing that in theaters and being like, what, like, holy fucking shit. Like, what is this movie? I didn't like it. Especially when you realize that it's like one one of their lowest, like, quality films in their pantheon of great cinema well i mean i don't even know if i agree with that maybe one day we'll do a separate a block of of underappreciated of underappreciated coen brothers movies i, mean, I think we have a lot of discussion about coen brother movies but. yeah but maybe we <laughs> want to have a couple more um and the man that wasn't there is actually we'll, we'll rename our podcast at some the point the man who wasn't there is actually one of the movies that was almost on my list if i had made a 150 it would have been on that list um i love lady killers which is you do love lady killers i feel like we've had this conversation yeah. before yeah i i think it's a funny. I mean, I don't think it's a great piece of cinema, but it's funny as hell. Mm-hmm. And Tom Hanks playing well against part. I mean, just. I mean, Coen Brothers are doing something in every movie they're doing except for Intolerable Cruelty. Right. Um, Fuck that movie. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people feel that way. Um, it's just too shiny, yeah. right? Everyone, everything's it's too, too Zia shiny. Jonesy. Um, so this is a movie that I after I saw it. Um, the hype was there because even before I saw it, you know, after I saw The Big Lebowski, everyone's like, oh, you have to see Fargo. Almost kind of suggesting that I didn't understand The Big Lebowski or I didn't understand what the Coen brothers were about until I saw Fargo. And I actually think that's 100% true. Really? I actually feel like it's, it is the earliest synthesis of what they would go to do later on in their careers. Well, how so? How, I, I, I would want to hear well, your thoughts on that right now. Part of me 
wants to go really deep into it, and I feel like I should save it. But there is a... I mean, they made a sequel to this movie, and it's called No Country for Old Men. And it's very... Um, you take Marge, you know... Uh, I mean, I think it's... Uh, oh, damn it. Damn it, Mario. I have so many thoughts that I want to go into now I think, about I think we're getting at some of these. We're well, not going to be talking about this for a yeah, while. Yeah. Um, you take the role of Marge, for instance. You know, a streetwise cop, for Minnesota at least. Um, and the fact that she's pregnant really doesn't play into it very much. It's, yeah, used for a couple jokes. Um, but you know, the people that matter... Uh, her husband really acknowledged it in some of the police force, but like the criminals never acknowledge it, and Jerry never acknowledges it. But other than that, it kind of ends on... It's traditionally thought that it ends on a positive note, where they're laying in bed together, and she says, we're doing pretty good. Um, he gets his mallard on the stamp. Um, but the three-cent stamp. The three-cent stamp, but everyone, you know, you gotta... People use people the three-cent three stamp. stamp. When they raise the postage, they go for the smaller ones. Um, and it's the first time that he... That he cracks a smile, like a little bit, like it's yeah. the side of his mouth. He's got a little, little smile there. Um, I see when I saw No Country for Old Men, and you have the last Tommy Lee Jones, or pretty much all the Tommy Lee Jones scenes. But the, I remember the last one specifically when he's talking to that his monologue. Um, and he, you know, he's just defeated, and he kind of talks about having seen all the things that he's seen now. He just doesn't understand the world he lives in anymore and i don't want to bring this into a big you know a, a conversation about no country for old men but i instantly the flashed... movie we're gonna be talking about later either not at all not definitely not twice yeah for sure um it instantly flashed me back to that bed scene in fargo where <clears throat> maybe not the bed scene maybe the when she's driving peter stormare's character in the car and she's saying you know it's a beautiful day um and she's kind of talking about why he would do the things that he did, um, you know, just for a little bit of money. Um, it it took me to a place where it's kind of, they seem like extensions of one another. He seems like an extension of, of her idea, but a character who's seen a lot more things. Life has continued to go on. You know, I don't know if she obviously, prob- she probably had the baby. You know, everything came out fine in two months. Maybe it didn't. Um, but she continued to be a police officer, and she continued maybe to see some things. And it, that, that feeling of hope has transitioned into a feeling of desolation and loneliness. And it kind of... Would you say that from the final monologue that Tommy Lee Jones has, where he's talking about the seeing his father with the fire? Well, and you can kind of... In the darkness. And you, that's, where, that's where it occurred to me. But you can kind of... When you go back and watch it, you can kind of see shadows of it through his whole performance where he's still trying he's still trying to make sense of the world in the same way that marge was really thought she had made sense of the world she thought the world was this and then she saw um peter stormare stuffing steve buscemi's carl showalter's leg into a wood chipper and now she doesn't understand what this thing is anymore see i I would have to push back on that a bit i think the ending definitely um, harkens back to the fact that she's still going to try to find hope in this kind of like bleak world. I think Tommy Lee Jones, and I unfortunately know his character name, and that's a book I love and a movie I love, but um, Tommy Lee Jones in that is somebody who intrinsically has a bit of not necessarily nihilism, but a little bit of existential crisis all throughout his life. Bet definitely mentioned the fact that he's older than his father now. Mm-hmm. 
uh, he's seen a world transition. That's something that's brought up in the Court McCarthy novel. Well, I think what of I'm... how you see the world transition. But yeah, I think that he's intrinsically somebody who does see the negative in the world. I'm not that linking, she's I'm, not. So I think the interesting point here is that I'm not linking up the characters as much as I'm linking up the Cohen's view of of the world. Okay, I, I guess I, I can accept that. So after you know twenty odd years of making movies, they've actually kind of found themselves in this place where in 1996 there was hope in 1996 there was a baby on the way in 2007 there was whatever the fuck was left after you know no country for old men oh man what's gonna what's gonna become their netflix movie that's coming out later in this year i don't know if we're talking about their interpretation of the world i just did a scared face there i think that's one of the things that is really interesting about the Coens is that year after year they put out a movie that has to be considered. And so once you've, once you've recognized that you kind of can't unknow it. So even when they put out something stupid like hail Caesar or, you know, stupid, but enjoyable, like the lady killers or, uh, Hudsucker proxy, but, or even something like intolerable, intolerable cruelty or burn after reading. You know what I mean? Where these are these are 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 fun movies. They're they're fantasies almost in their in their world where they live in they they exist in such a bleak a generally bleak. It's basically of the it's, universe. it's something like a it's a mad 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 world inside yeah. of a very nihilistic world. Once you know that you can't. Once you know what the Coens are about, you kind of can't unknow it, and you kind of start seeing movies through the lens of having seen something like Fargo. What is that? And it's one of those movies that shapes maybe not your, how you see film from an intellectual level, like piecing together, piecing together shots, but how you experience film and you're not experiencing it just in a way where you're like, Oh, that was fun or that's funny or that's sad. You're experiencing it. And you know you're experiencing it on a much more complex level. Like, there is something going on here. There is something beyond my general understanding of the world that is trying to be expressed in this movie. Um, and that's really one of the reasons that it's on my list. It's one of the reasons that, like, next week's movie is on my list and the week after that. Is that these are all kind of movies that, once you've seen them, they, they kind of shape... They've, they've, they've torn a cover off. Of, of your movie watching experience. Well, I, it makes you more open to seeing other more complicated movies. I would be curious about that statement in the sense of you were saying you saw Big Lebowski first and somebody said that you did yourself a disservice. So how, right. how necessarily that's did, good, did you agree with that? That's a good question because Thank Big you. Lebowski... <laughs> you always do that. Whatever I say, that was good. Or like, whatever. It was like, thanks, dick. Just accepting that you were saying thank you. Um... Being nice. For the longest time, Mario, I just saw The Big Lebowski as a really funny movie. But I don't know about you, but I've seen The Big Lebowski probably too many times to actually count at this point in my life. Big Lebowski is a movie I I enjoy. Yeah. Um, It grew. I've seen it about three times. Um, you have to edit that out. My, my appreciation <laughs> of The Big Lebowski actually grew after seeing Fargo. After having a better understanding of what these guys 
not what these guys were about, but like I said, making me more open to um, sca- I don't want to say scary things in film because that seems really naive and babyish, but like uncomfortable things in film. Or even that something that might seem fairly innocuous may actually be fairly subversive and may actually harbor a darker intent than it was initially laid out for you in the movie. I think a good example of that is in Burn After Reading, where you get characters who are fairly innocent are very naive in very dark or grim situations. And that's kind of hallmarked where George Clooney's character shoots Brad Pitt's character in the head. And he comes out smiling and grinning. And throughout the entire film, he's been this naive joke of a human. But, but you know, he, he he's presented as that. He's presented as kind of comic relief. And then he just gets killed in the most gruesome of ways. Well, and, I think- and that's kind of like showing you the world and like naivety and necessi- not necessarily naivety, but optimism in this much more realistic, One th- grim world. And you can say something about, you could say something similar in a way about The Big Lebowski. Where, if you wanted to, you can analyze how very, very damaged the like some of these people are in this movie. And now what's happening, The Big Lebowski, isn't so much designed to be funny, but is is designed to show you a kind of a kind of brokenness and a kind of um, uh, you know they talk a lot about nihilism in that movie. But so even some of that stuff. They say it as a joke. They play it for a joke. You know what I mean? Like the Germans, the Germans are, are nihilists. Um, but everyone's kind of a nihilist. Nobody believes in anything in that movie. And the things that they believe in don't matter at all. And they all seem to acknowledge the fact that nothing they believe in matters. They just want to keep living and keep making their art that doesn't matter and making their porn films that don't matter and having their parties. They want to have their rugs. They want to bowl. But these things don't, these things are nothing. These things, there's, you get the sense, I think one of the things that I love about The Big Lebowski, and I don't want to transition from it too much, from Fargo too much to talk about The Big Lebowski, is that you get the sense that there's a much larger world outside of the world that they inhabit, but they're never going to show it to you because these people never go outside that world. Um, well, they kind of do that in the dream sequence with Lebowski. Well, they, that's the thing. So the, but the dream sequence are a perfect example of that, is that they're not actually going there. No. It's only like once you've had a lot to drink or get hit in the head or get drugged that you're actually allowed to go beyond, you know, where – to go beyond – between the Ralphs, if you will. Yeah. Um, and something like – it's something like Fargo where – you know, the bulk of the action takes place in Minnesota, but the movie is named for the place where Jerry goes to meet um, Carl and Gear to, to, you know, set up the operation. Um, it's named for that one moment, that one moment in the movie where he steps outside of the place that he knows and the place where everything is going to happen and, and goes to make the thing happen. Um, and it's kind of, a, you know it leads to all these terrible things happening. You know, it's like stepping outside of your comfort zone. Yeah. Stepping outside of your home is going to lead to, is going to lead to a recognition that there's forces in the world beyond your control. And that's a pretty, I mean, when you start thinking about movies and in, in whatever way you're going to think about them, if you're going to think about them seriously, and I'm really trying hard not to sound like a dick here, if you're gonna think about them seriously, like those. Kind <laughs> Where of, I did that when he said duck. I said duck. Um, 
those kind of movies are, I think, really integral to your growth as an appreciator of movies. That there's where the you know the veil is kind of broken through. You know what I mean? As you know, to make a Stephen King reference, you know that thin sheet that kind of separates reality from the other reality is opened from biting ants from biting ants or from you know getting pushed in front of traffic or from a doctor that comes out at night cutting some weird cord on your head um that's that's some easter eggs for all you stephen king idiots out there um fucking nerds (laughs) i can i can i'll join them with their nerdism well i was the one that brought that up there you go um you know you gotta have those movies. In Fargo, the movie next week, the movie after that, totally one of those movies. That just kind of was, you know, you think you know something, and then there's just a little tear, and you look through it, and you're like, fuck. It just burrows I don't in. know anything. It just burrows into you. Yeah. And then, and then it becomes a part of you. Like, that's the thing. So Fargo... So it's parasitic in a I sense. Don't, I don't have, like, a specific connection to the, to the movie, per se. Like, I have to some of my later movies. But the what the movie gave me in a lot of the ways it's like some some of the same ways the accidental tourist did, you know, it's oh. just stuck in you. It's just it's you know you can't shake it. It's just stuck. I wish I could shake everything about the accidental tourist. You've been thinking about it every moment from when you saw it. I know it. Fuck you, Glickhasden. <laughs> Fuck you. I want this the rest of this to just turn into us yelling about Lawrence Kasdan. Oh, I'm glad. I got I'm some gonna more bring, things to say, I'm Lawrence Kasdan. Um, I'm going to find more cats than shit. So I think, I mean, I don't really have a lot more to say about it right now. We, we have a lot to say. We have a we, lot I mean, to say. I got a page of notes here. I touched on one of them. Yeah. And in a period of time greater than a season, we will uh, discuss this further. Yeah, we'll go, we'll go deeper. But for now, let's, I think we're going to move on to my number 93, which does not show up on Tom's list. Ha-ha. So we'll have a real actual conversation about that right after this break welcome back my number 93 is 1998's second feature film from filmmaker wes anderson and the last film of his on my list to do a little spoiler warning co-written between Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson, University of Texas alums. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's important. You need sponsorship from them. It's Rushmore. Rushmore tells the tale of Max Fisher, played by 17-year-old Jason Schwartzman in his debut, mm. uh, playing a 15-year-old who looks like he's 30. My God. No, he's, he looks 15. You think so? I think I watching it now, Jason, he does. I, I know. I just looked at it. I was like, Jason Schwartzman was like, I'll had to be almost close to 30 when he did this. And I was like, oh my God, he was 17? No, and he just, he hadn't grown into his face quite yet. I guess so. They do mention that, the oval the oval face during his arrest scene. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> he, he plays a poor student, a, a poor student in the sense of bad at his class. One of the worst students they have at yeah. uh, as As told by Nelson Guggenheim, played by Brian Cox. Uh, who becomes enamored by Rosemary Cross, the art teacher played by Olivia Williams. Um, and it is basically a romantic, lovelorn, coming-of-age tale 
uh, has Max competes with Bill Murray's Herman Bloom for Mrs. Cross's affection. Mm-hmm. And from there, a Wes Anderson film emerges, but <laughs> not so much of a Wes Anderson film. And that is why it shows up on my list. This was the first Wes Anderson film I'd ever seen. Mm-hmm. I saw this uh, in between Royal Tannenbaums, which I do not like. And oh, we'll Aqu- have a good conversation about that. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. And Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou, which I also really do not like. Uh, we will not be having no, a conversation, be no about conversation that. with that. Um, so this was the first Wes Anderson film I had seen, and I appreciated the hallmarks of Wes Anderson throughout the use of symmetry, uh, the stylistic choices, um, the the moments that reflect films like Graduate and Harold and Maude. But mostly I like it because it's an imperfect movie and it's authentic. And that's the big issue I have. I think a lot of this conversation is going to be, I don't want to say a loss of a filmmaker, but but a filmmaker who's become so enamored by his motifs and so much of a person who's strung up in style. And this is a big argument that's made about Wes Anderson right now is does his substance, you know, is his substance told through style? And I don't think so anymore. But I think here it was. Um, well, I think the style, I, we're going to disagree with this later at some point. I think the style. Oh, no, I, I would not say Rural Tannenbaum's. I say Rural Tannenbaum still has a lot of substance. I just no, do I think, not like Rural Tannenbaum's. So I think, yeah. So, But I think he, um, I think he perfected his style in in Royal Tannenbaums. I think he had a vision in. Oh, I would agree. Rushmore. The style in Royal Tannenbaums is better. I just don't like the he story. He has married right. Well, I think I think interestingly enough, he married the, his style to the perfect story in the Royal Tannenbaums. But I think there's something to be said for trying this style out on this story, which makes it an alive movie. And he hasn't made an alive movie since the Royal Tannenbaums. And I would agree. And that is, um, there's, there's a lot of arguments about Wes Anderson's first three films, Bottle Rocket, Rushmore, and Royal Tannenbaums. Royal Tannenbaums is made on a budget of $21 million, so he's able to do a lot more than mm-hmm. he is with Rushmore. Rushmore is made on a budget of $10 million. And so a lot of the setting, all of the settings really are done on location, done in and throughout Houston, Texas. The Rushmore Academy, Grover Cleveland High School, all on location. They had to, as was mentioned in an article, ghetto up. <laughs> I don't know if that's a term of the age, not really appropriate nowadays, yeah. um, uh, public school for, for Grover Cleveland. But you see the stylistic choices in Wes Anderson um, framing his picture, you know, trying to get that very solid rule of thirds, especially like in the chapel scene that would then be later in films, I think especially starting with like Darjeeling Limited, mm-hmm. done in a very manufactured way. Yeah. Where he had a budget, where he knew he, people knew, studios knew he was, in a very manufactured way where studios knew he was a name, knew he could bring in money, so they gave him the money he needed, and so he was able to frame his scenes perfectly because he feels like a bit of a perfectionist in that way. Mm-hmm. Here he did not have that uh there's a famous instance of Wes Anderson being nervous with Bill Murray. Mm-hmm. And so like whispering to him direction, worried about the fact that Bill Murray would like yell at him and say he's wrong. And 
was like Bill Murray constantly deferred to him. Uh-huh. And there was a scene that they wanted to do of like a helicopter sequence between Max and um, Herman. Uh-huh. That was going to cost around $75,000. And Disney went like, yeah, go fuck yourselves. That's too much money. And Bill Murray wrote them a blank check. Like, create a blank check for Wes Anderson. And they ended up not filming the sequence. But in later films, Wes Anderson would want to do a shot like that. And Disney would ejaculate over itself. (laughs) And fire another James Gunn. You know know what? The problem, actually, the, the problem more realistically is that they would give him the money to do that. And he would shoot it with, like, a helicopter puppet. Oh, or a exactly. model against a painted backdrop, and you know, I don't know. I don't do a Wes Anderson thing to it, and you, everyone would be like, "Oh, it's so cool! Look what he did!" He, but it's not, but it's not cool. cool. It, it was cool back when he made this movie because it was cool in the sense of there's a rawness to it. Mm. There is a need to access his pure talents as a filmmaker, and he's an extremely talented filmmaker. Well. I mean, he tells, he, he sculpts a story through visuals quite often, even in his current films. But there's a difference to me. And from manufacturing it on a very inauthentic, artificial level and being forced to manufacture it with the tools that you have. And it right. makes it much more of a realistic, much more of a humanistic sort of story and that's what Rushmore is to me. And it makes the movies and his and his style much more justified. So, I mean, I don't know if you can speak to this or if you remember this or maybe it's just for me it has a bigger role than it does for you, but like do you remember the first time you saw the scene where they're showing all of Max's clubs? To the creations making time. Yeah. You know, the... Oh, yeah. It's one of the great scenes in modern film history, and I that's, think. And that was my introduction to Wes Anderson. Like, this was the first thing I'd seen of his. Um, seems, and so, like, that seems so new. It blew my fucking mind when I Just saw going it. to, like, these really goofy montages. The, barbon- the Bombardment Society being a dodgeball club. But just, like, this is really goofiness, but, like, this, this, like, whimsicalness. And, like, when whimsical... Right. Felt really, truly, like really, actually whimsical. Yeah, not not like I I need to do this. Right, and so here's the thing that I would say is that he he captured something there on purpose, but he's almost seems like he's been trying to capture that exact same energy in every single movie he's made since, and he hasn't. He hasn't done it. I mean, Royal I mean, maybe Royal Tenenbaums, but it has a different it has a different energy. I mean, Royal Tenenbaums is like a is like a picture that. Like a painting that moves. Um, I but, opened a bottle there and almost cut myself. That would have been fun. That's how we fucking do it here. Pivotal film. Um, Pivotal blood. <laughs> but that, like, the first time you see Quick that, crips, you know, set up with the block, the the, you know, the square block letters with, um, you know, alternating colors, kind of designed to bleed into the background a little bit. Um, set up like you know human dioramas. You're just kind of like, what the fuck? What is this? Like, what is happening here? This is, this doesn't happen. Movies is the fourth wall being broken. What's happening? What's supposed to be? What's the point of this? Um, and there's there's a lot of that too. Like like that is is a great introduction. But he does that again later on in the montage, um, to the Who song. Yep. Where they're kind of like one upping. Yeah, where they're one upping um, the kind of like roles of revenge. 
where you know there's very purposeful framing choices in that montage she like when bill murray's going to destroy max's bike it tries to keep like a dolly lines in center but it kind of misses at times but what i really appreciate too is where max goes to cut the brakes and you know it does that like center shot that's very you know center frame is is wes anderson's thing but usually the color palette's in line Mm -hmm. usually you know you're gonna get a a symmetry to the colors but here he just didn't have that it was just yeah he's just on the ground of a factory well and i would say too that i would point to that scene as well that exact moment um i don't know if we're going to call that whole thing a scene but that exact moment where he's going into the thing um it's like a montage i'm drawn to um jason jason schwartzman's performance there I mean, he performs it like he's cut brake lines before. He's 15 years old, but he whips his sunglasses off. He has the exact correct tools right there. He slides under, you know, you know, abruptly, but also with a, a very specific purpose in a very specific spot. Um, well, I'd go back to that creation uh, montage in the beginning and the fact that some of those clubs that are kind of brought up quickly – are then used later on um, in the sense of you could look at the go-kart thing as him having experience with vehicles of some sure. sort oh, in mind. Yeah. And that is kind of more firmly grounded in the fact when he lets the bees out. Well, the beekeepers in, club. Yeah. From the beekeepers well, they talk club. about like her husband, um, Miss Cross, Miss Cross's husband um, founded the beekeepers club at Rushmore. That Max but, is the president of. But that's the thing. That's that's kind of that. That's what made me really appreciate this movie. And I won't say it's the first example. There's a lot of examples, but the, this this very raw visual aesthetic and a director you can see is still up and coming. Still hasn't set his foot. Uh, I'd seen. I saw Bottle Rocket immediately after this, and Bottle Rocket's much more of a very traditional kind of feature. It has some of those cornerstones and touch. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, still has those touches, especially in the dialogue and the characterizations, but not so much in the visual style. Mm-hmm. But to me, this spoke to me because it's it's authentic in the way that he is he has a vision in his head. He doesn't necessarily he's not necessarily has the tools available to him to craft that image on film, but it's somebody who has that vision. I think we're talking off air about Roger Ebert's kind of not really scathing, but middling review of yeah. this he gave it two and a half stars and a most of that review focuses in the fact that like he talked about wes anderson you know he, he reviewed it at sundance and talked about how wes anderson was able to sell it to disney to miramax at sundance and like every new filmmaker is out here at sundance trying to find a production trying to find someone to pick it up mm-hmm. and they're gonna fail and whatnot and it kind of feels like he's he he saw that vision. Mm-hmm. He saw that the fact that Wes Anderson had a really raw style and a raw eye, and and saw the ability to tell a story. But he didn't feel like this this kid, this twenty nine year old well, kid, can't be doing this. Yeah, and to and to simultaneously defend Roger Ebert and also kind of um, speak to your point and and agree with your point is that. Um, I think to Roger Ebert, a raw eye is still mean streets. You know what I mean? Mm. Is still, you know, 
an early Francis Ford Coppola movie is still an early Sydney like Deer Hunter or, or yeah or or you know Deer Hunter or like an early Sydney Lumet movie you know yeah. what I mean a uh, Peter um, Bogdanovich oh yeah I mean I I don't even want to talk about Peter no one ever should ever speak the name Peter Bogdanovich ever again it's the era of Peter Bogdanovich is fucking we're, g- we're gonna have to talk about him at some point later this year Whatever. I think he's in other side of the world oh no, no but not as a director no as an no. actor though um. But that's the thing. So uh, yeah. So a raw eye used Starring to mean that that raw new talent Orson Welles. Yeah, a raw eye used to mean the Last Picture Show. Um, a raw eye used to mean fucking Orson Welles. You yeah. know what I mean? No, exactly. Which we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks. Um, I don't think they said. I don't think people. This is another example of where the establishment. And this is not political at all. I'm just using this political words. The yeah, establishment man, was not man, prepared man. for a new vision of what um, the. For a new vision of what the culture was going to look like, and I think this was really important. I think so too. Uh, Rushmore is hugely important for opening doors. Yes, um, Wes Anderson's not my favorite filmmaker. I, I we talked about this before with Moonrise Kingdom. I appreciate what he does, but he opened up the door. I think for films that were made maybe previous and around that time, such as Pie and The Yo, Following. Yeah, which are two filmmakers I prefer much more, and Darren Aronofsky and Christopher Nolan. But Wes Anderson was. Like this film ends up making around eighteen nineteen million dollars. It's a it's a success for an independent film. Like worldwide box office of nineteen million dollars off of what basically, you know, ends up being mostly a coming of age comedy. I mean, it reestablished Bill Murray as a human. Yeah, exactly. I mean, not just as a performer, but as a person that exists on the earth. Yeah, I mean, he, he was largely, you know. He's pushed, forgotten after he's pushed to the margins of, of after the entertainment Day. industry after Groundhog Day, um, and then Wes Anderson just picks him up and resurrects his career, and within a couple of years he's getting nominated for fucking Oscar. He got a Golden Globe nomination for Best Supporting Actor off this movie, so he should have gotten an Oscar nomination. No, of for course, this movie. Yeah. he should have won an Oscar for this movie, but that's neither here nor there. But I think I would say that this movie shows up as a pivotal film for me, hugely because it opens up the door for what would come in the 2000s for that kind mm-hmm. of raw auteur filmmaking. You don't see that a lot in the late 90s. Um, at least in the mainstream, you don't see that auteur eye as much. Well, you have uh, like the... new auteur eye. Right, because you it, had the It's definitely Tarantinos. like a new age of, of cinema. Well, so you had the Tarantinos and you had the, um, you know... Yeah, from the, the maybe the Soderbergs mid... Soderbergs. In the mid-80s leading on, like the Paul Verhoevens and whatnot. Um, but yeah, you didn't have... Where we now we have... The auteur used to kind of mean, the, the idea of the auteur used to mean something different. So, you know, Will Friedkin was an auteur at one point. You go from making the French connection to The Exorcist to fucking Sorcerer. Um, or, you know, Peter Bogdanovich who made Last Picture Show and then nothing. I mean, he made movies, but they're garbage. Um, Fuck you, Peter Bogdanovich. Yeah, take that. He's where he's... You and Lawrence Kasdan. Um, you know... The auteur, the idea of the auteur in film... And James A. Brooks were coming for you, too. <laughs> with Wes Anderson, kind of uh, took, a different, took a different turn. You could, make a, you could make a small movie and say something really big. Um, it wasn't the idea that you were going to make a... You know, I don't know if Dennis Hopper was ever an, uh, considered an auteur when he made Easy Rider. Um, but the idea wasn't ever that you would make a small movie and then make another small movie, and then make another small movie. Or not 
movies that had bigger budgets, but that played to a smaller audience. The idea with the auteurs was always, especially in the 60s and uh, in the 70s, was like you would make some small movies and then you would make a big movie. And then you would get awards and then you would make, you know, prestige movies for the rest of your life. And I think I think what's interesting about Wes Anderson is the fact that he kind of opened up the door in the fact that Christopher Nolan, for example, makes following, follows up with Memento, a slightly bigger movie, but still smaller. Insomnia has nameless actors, but still kind of small. Um, you know, those first three movies are, are still staying within that wheelhouse. And I think he, Wes Anderson also opens up the door for somebody like a Shane Carruth, mm-hmm. who makes something like Primer and then Upstream Color, but is still staying within that kind of small world. And I think Wes Anderson... With Bottle Rocket and then Rushmore, and then unfortunately, kind of like from there, Royal Tannenbaums has a bigger budget, but Royal Tannenbaums is still within that kind of restrained wheelhouse. But after that, he kind of, I, I feel like he loses the plot. I love Moonrise Kingdom, but it's starting to lose the plot for me. Um, but I think one of the biggest reasons he shows up on this list where he does is the fact that above all else, Wes Anderson opened up a lot of doorways to the auteurs of the late 90s. You know, like you're saying, Roger Ebert was looking for somebody to make a mean streets, looking for somebody to make a deer hunter of the time. But Wes Anderson allowed filmmakers uh, from the success of Rushmore and from the success of the Royal Tannenbaums, filmmakers like Christopher Nolan, Darren Aronofsky, Paul Thomas Anderson, directors I all like a lot more, mm-hmm. not to say so much, but I, I, they all have films that are going to show up on my list later. Um you know, directors who have a vision, but have a vision that's very independent of themselves and isn't so much of a callback to the films of previous. I mean, Rushmore has the moments that harken back to something like The Graduate, you know, where, you know, Herman drops into the water and it's kind of sitting underneath the water. That's very graduate-like. Or Harold and Maude, a lot of the story marks, a lot of the hallmarks of the story connect into something like Harold and Maude. But Wes Anderson made it okay for a filmmaker and not to be an auteur of a new age. It kind of opened up the door to the new age. Well, you film. can all, I mean, you can think about, if you think about that Herman Bloom scene where he's in the bottom of the pool as a nod to the graduate, you kind of have to think of that. You have to think of how is it a nod? Is it an homage or is it in a way a kind of subversion of the graduate that maybe it's yeah. not, I didn't the young, that way. it's not the young kid that's in the pool anymore. It's the old man. Are we still, is there still room? Is he trying to say that, I don't don't even really want to make a case for what he's trying to say. Is there something at play here where these new auteurs that we just mentioned are kind of saying to the old auteurs, or or to people like Roger Ebert, or even to Pauline Kael, who... Wes Anderson famously screened the movie specifically for in her Barrington Mass, local Barrington Mass theater. And Pauline Kael, who was, you know, riddled with Parkinson's, the thing she said to him after the movie was, did you show them a script before they let you make this? And he was just confused by the fact that that happened. You know, is he saying to the Roger Eberts and the Pauline Kales? Or that, even to a further extent, the Mike Lees, as you were saying. Is he saying that these, it's not, movies can look like this now. Movies can feel like this. This is the new energy in movies. I, There's I a new irony. There's a new thing in movie, 
in movies where we can use irony as symbolism and not just, you know, the 60s, 70s auteur version of symbolism. I don't even know if that's necessarily true. I would almost say the use of that scene with Herman Bloom underneath the water is maybe an example of that visual storytelling. Um, You know, Herman is kind of like that, still that kid almost. He hasn't grown up. He hasn't matured yet to be the adult. So he is very much like the Dustin Hoffman-esque character. Mm. Um, And it's shown that way by having an old man underneath the water in the same way to kind of escape the droll drums and the misconceptions that he has of well, the world. Well, he's saying the old man things when he's giving the speech in, in chapel to the kids in, at the Rushmore Academy early in the movie when he's just like, you know... You guys have it real easy. I never had it like this where I grew up. But I send my kids here because the fact is you go to one of the best schools in the country. Rushmore. Now, for some of you, it doesn't matter. You were born rich and you're going to stay rich. But here's my advice to the rest of you. Take dead aim on the rich boys. Get them in the crosshairs and take them down. Just remember, they can buy anything, but they can't buy backbone. Don't let them forget that. Thank you. A kind of very punk aesthetic don't let the man get you down, you know, fight the power. When he is the man, he is the power. Yeah, exactly. He's a but he's just, I think the thing that Rushmore makes interesting is that the idea that he's a multimillionaire doesn't mean that he specifically agrees with even, I mean, he hates his kids famous, you know, he, he reaches back to hit his kid when they say they won't invite Max, when they won't invite Max to their party. Yeah. Um, you know, he's not your traditional stick-in-the-mud old man type of character. And it's interesting because I think Max perceives him as a, a slightly hipper version of his dad, where he is that stuck-in-the-mud old character and that he isn't a, th- he isn't a threat to what Max wants. But uh, and perhaps this is a testament to Max's youth is that he doesn't... Perce- it's a testament to Max's youth that he doesn't perceive that. Um, and is the idea that nobody knows anything, you know, all these sixties or seventies movies, there's always like, there's always somebody that knows something, you know what I mean? Somebody that's got some, that's got it more together than everybody else. This is a very Gen X movie in the sense that nobody knows anything. Yeah. And there's, what's nice is, you know, he, he cast two actors, especially in Bill Murray, um, and slightly in the same way in Olivia Williams and, Jason Schwartzman and the fact that they're able to telegraph those moments where they have a realization of some other character's growth or some other realization of that character with like subtle facial reactions. Mm -hmm. There's that scene where Jason Schwartzman, Max reveals to Herman that, you know, his dad's actually a barber Mm -hmm. near the end of the film. And like it's, it's sold in just the very slightest like change in Bill Murray's face of like this kind of like appreciation of his growth, like but it's Max's also, growth as an and, adult. But it's also and like the acceptance of the friendship too. But it's also sold in Jason Schwartzman's the same thing, a very subtle growth of character where he's a little lighter. He's not as heavy. I mean, even though he's wearing that really heavy velvet suit, like the yeah. green velvet suit, he's got like a lighter air to him. He's not as he's not as serious. And somehow everybody isn't as serious anymore. And the whole film kind of raises up. 
I mean, and that's one of the things that it's one of the things my problems with the film is like I don't know. It seems like there's four acts, not five, and there's not three. It seems like there's four acts. How so? Where so the first act obviously is like the introduction of all the players. The second act is um, begins when like Herman meets of the wooing Max. the wooing scenes. Um, there's the third act, which I think is delineated by the you know the the curtains, the curtains month like scenes, that. yeah. There's a third act where uh, Max is depressed and he's dropped out of school and he's being a barber and um, he has, you know, things that, you know, he gets attacked um, by Dirk and his friends and, you know, Dirk won't give him his hand. And um, and then there's the fourth act where everything kind of comes together. I would say it's a denouement. Mostly, yeah, but it's 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 a long denouement, but it's well. So that's uh, like like I said, that's one of my problems. Is that I don't think he was a skilled enough. I don't think he was a skilled enough filmmaker until after he made this movie to not make those scenes or those those periods of the movie just kind of drag. Well, I think it's to just the a, point where they they be, seem like they be they act as like self contained acts almost of of a play that seems to be suggested in the movie. Um, where, I mean, even something like we talked about before, where they're kind of doing to the Who song, they're doing all the, you know, he's running over his bike tire and they're putting the bees in the thing and he's cutting his brakes. Um, it's supposed to be really fun. It's supposed to be a fun montage that compares to the earlier montage, but it's not as fun and it's not as, it's not as light and it's not, it's not filmed. And I don't think it's supposed, it's obviously not supposed to be as light, but because it's not light, it kind of, drags the movie drags at that point when yeah. max becomes sad and depressed starting with all of those things um and it takes and that slow motion arrest scenes a little on the nose it's just, it's just told for it's it works well with the music so they kind of do that and it and it relates to the slow motion leaving the elevator after you put the bees in yeah and it's just a little too it's a little much it's where it stops being a semi-believable movie about a kid with delusions of grandeur um a, a grown-up who never grew up, who is in a you know, a seemingly loveless marriage, a seemingly loveless family, who's just reaching out for someone who just cares um, about him, and turns into like a different kind of movie. Well, see, that's why I appreciate about it. Like that's I think why it shows up on my list is if it had been more of a sort of concise film, had it been a, a lot more of a tight film, I, agree I don't think it would have been as remembered. I think it's yeah. I think its failures actually work for its for benefit. Its benefit yeah. And yet it creates that otherworldliness to it. It creates this very much. You're watching a film all throughout Rushmore. You don't become so invested in the story that you don't think you're watching a movie throughout the entire time. You know you're watching beats of a film. You know you're watching something that's stylistically being presented to you as a story in the visual medium. In the sense of you know everything that's Wes Anderson's doing works either towards the story works towards the interpretation of how the characters are done um you know talking back to our bonus episode a couple weeks ago with lynn ramsey she's someone who's a little more cut and concise and will minimalize everything Mm -hmm. and she's kind of falling underneath the radar you know we need to talk about kevin gets a little bit discussed um but you're never really here morvin caller rat catcher all those movies kind of just don't get talked about because they're so tight and so concise and having this sort of motif early on established, I think was to the benefit of it. And the fact that it created a voice and 
that's why I appreciate it for, and that's why it shows up here as a pivotal film for me, is the fact that it allowed a filmmaker who's still raw, who still has a lot of talent and has an eye and has a voice to do something. And, you know, around that time, looking at even like the Oscars, you'd had movies like The English Patient, Shakespeare in Love, and Titanic, when movies that are really safe and of that time. Mm-hmm. And so that's what the late 90s were known for. It's just these kind of safe movies. There's a couple that pop in that will be talked about on my list that weren't. But what was nice about this was I think it just opened up a lot of doors. And it opened up a lot of doors to the films that would come out in the late 90s, the later part of the 90s, 99, and then in the 2000s, that told a new vision, that had a new eye and a new sort of way of telling a story. That was really important. One of the you could also point to this time was where the Oscars, you know, aside from American Beauty, um, which was culturally relevant and then rewarded justly at the at you know in the Academy Awards, mm-hmm. where the movies that really moved the culture, that people talked about, that people wrote about, that people got excited about, were not the same movies that the establishment, you know, um, film whatever you want to call it, you know, the political body governing what gets released or what doesn't get released, the big studios and what have you. Um, people weren't talking about those those movies. Like the fact that Shakespeare in Love won an Oscar actually in reality means nothing. You know what I mean? Because nobody talked about it then. Nobody's talking about it now. Nobody talks about it now. It's just a movie that came and won an Oscar for Best Picture and Best Actress and then disappeared off the face of the earth. Um, Thank God. It's one of the, yeah. Um, but you see something with this this movie with a lot of other movies that came out after this, you know, American Beauty being one of them, but also less recognized movies that you already kind of mentioned, like Boogie Nights, um, you know, and yeah, Boogie Nights is, is a year before. Stuff like that. But, but even, or even, you know, the earlier Linkletter stuff um, transitioning into Before Sunset. Um, which came out or around like something like Waking Life, Waking which Life. is doing a lot of unique things. You know, you things. get people, or this, later like Shane Kroop's like Primer. Mm, I feel like this movie got people interested in watching and thinking about movies again. Yeah, you know what I mean. Bringing in, in, it back into it into a more into a way that people did when Pulp Fiction came out, and that they kind of stopped doing because all these you know the studios were making the movies that they were making and there was Braveheart and there was Titanic and whatever. But then um, the movies became interesting. And I think the soundtrack probably had a lot to do with that where they, he leaned heavily on like these, the British invasion, the British invasion stuff and like these hipster songs, but also the idea of, you know, the wind by Cat Stevens was used in like every movie of those three years. Cause almost fa- like, you know, so Rushmore used the wind, I think badly, I think um, almost famous used the wind in a better scene. I, I think the more most interesting use of song from Wes Anderson in this movie is um, his use of John Lennon's "O Yoko" towards the end of the movie, where things are starting to kind of click for for Max, and he's um, finding his voice. Finding his voice, he's reestablished. You know, he's met Margaret Yang while she's flying her model airplane, and he looks at her flight plan, and he sees that there's another person, and she says like uh, that the U S government doesn't actually want to use her science experiment. She just faked all the results. And Max kind of sees like a kindred spirit in yeah. Margaret Yang. And then, you know, you have the, Oh, you have Oyoko and it's, 
and it's aesthetically it works aesthetically with the movie in the sense that it's bouncy it's got a catchy melody um it aligns itself to all the other british invasion stuff that we'd already heard but if you dig into the context of it um you know you have the idea that it was written you know it was written about yoko ono who this is around the Imagine, tri- and this is on the Imagine. This album, is on the right? Imagine album, so it's like just post Beatles. It speaks to the idea that there's something that comes between something. So it's um, and he's chosen know, sides. Herman Bloom coming between him and Miss Cross. Miss Cross coming between him and um, Herman Bloom. Um, himself coming between Herman Bloom and Miss Cross. Um, it speaks to that. It speaks to yeah to the idea that he's moved on. So it's not so much so that he's. He's chosen sides in the sense that he's decided to see Rushmore as what it re- for what it really is, as opposed to what he kind of wishes it could, could be, which and is what we saw his, for the whole movie. And accepting his age in many ways, too. Right. And so that it's okay to have a girlfriend that's his age. Yeah. Um, I mean, he doesn't I'm, need to fake being anybody. Right. He, he doesn't need to of, pretend his dad is a neurosurgeon. He doesn't need to put on any of his pretenses. He can be a teenager. And a, I mean, a mature teenager for it you know, a 15 year old. Right. Um, but does not need those pretenses anymore. He can, he can leave that all in the past. He can, he can live in, he that. can live in the life that he actually has instead of exactly. trying to conform to a life that he's never going to have. And the o- life that he thinks his dead mother wanted for him. Right. Exactly. But Oyoko kind of says all of those things where in another movie, they would have had a bunch of expository dialogue or, a lot of visual images that conveyed that. Um, but Which is Wes like, yeah, bringing back to like that, that using all three different styles. Right. He's really, something. he's really savvy at using these, at using these songs or when he is really savvy at using these songs, it works really well. It actually works perfectly. It works better than doing something else would have. Well, that's why I'd say like a big thing, once again, kind of bearing into this point that the old West Anderson versus the new West Anderson is I think Mark Mothersbaugh does a lot better job with the soundtrack, composing the soundtrack, bringing together the tracks itself, and also the score than somebody like Alexander Duplat did. I think Alexander Duplat's kind of the so, wrong person to be with Wes Anderson. Well, he's, I don't know. He's, he's, he's kitschy. He's fantastical. He's boring. He doesn't deserve to win the Oscar this past year. <laughs> well, I mean, both of I mean, so in Carter Burwell's Fargo score, too, at first, when it first is introduced... When you see that snowplow kind of just going through the purple semi-darkness of that opening shot of Fargo, um, and you have this kind of neo-Western like score kind of swell up, mm-hmm. you're like, what the fuck is this? But after you watch the movie, you realize that it's kind of perfect. Yeah. It's, it, it's the thing that works. Alexander Duplat's scores seem to just fade into the background of, but they're intrusive. They're intrusive, but they kind of like do the same thing over and over again. That the fact that they become monotone. Well, I mean, we were talking about the John Williams score in *Accidental Taurus* last week, and it's the same thing. He just picks a theme and he just fucking hammers it until it's just stuck in your head like a pop song, and you're like, "I don't want that in there." Yeah, that's not a pop song. That's a film score. I don't want that in my brain. And I think what Marsball did is he does a lot of the sounds that the plot did would would try to replicate later, but they have an authenticity to it. And this is the the thing about this movie, ultimately, is it's authentic. Um, And that's why, you know, this is the reason why it shows up on my list, is the fact that it is a very true-to-itself film. 
you know, in, in the, it's rawness in its filmmaking, it's rawness in its storytelling, its commitment to doing the vision that Wes Anderson had. And the fact that that sort of commitment kind of askews a lot of what was happening in film at the time, because, you know, we both grew up with this movie, you know, mm, yeah. you were graduating high school around that time. I was, you know, I saw this in my freshman year of college, 2004. It's like, we grew up with those type of films. Um, and we saw the culture of film in real time at this point. And, you know, the late nineties was kind of marked just as I said, with those very artificial movies. And this was a very real film and the movies that would follow and kind of follow in its footsteps, follow in the footsteps of Paul Thomas Anderson, Christopher Nolan, Darren Aronofsky are very real. Well, I think it points to something that we're kind of dealing with now in movies is that there's a new energy. Wes Anderson represented a new energy. So whether it's Jared, um, Saulnier, Jeremy Saulnier, Jeremy or it's you know name countless other directors that are making that are making their Martin first McDonald's, couple movies right now. Three um, you know, Boots Riley, uh, or you even know, just Damien do, Chazelle. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like even though we're not big fans of Damien Chazelle, he's doing something different. He's doing something way different. There's a there's a there's a new energy um, to what what people are what directors are putting out. And Wes Anderson, it was kind of the late 90s, or the 90s version, the late 90s version, I guess, because Tarantino kind of co-opted the mid and Soderbergh co-opted the early, early mid-90s. mid-90s. Um, you know, there's a new, but even even Soderbergh and Tarantino are, are adherent to an old style of filmmaking in, in, in certain ways. Wes Anderson was kind of saying, like, no, I'm going to do something different. Yeah, and he has his I mean, homages, but it's very much homages of its time. So, just for fun, I'm going to pose a question before we wrap this up. Blue. It's, oh, shit. Now that you say it, it makes perfect sense. Is there a chance? So, I've always been fascinated by the use of slow motion in this movie. Mm. And I've also been fascinated by the curtains. You know, designating the the months of the year. The kind of breaks in the, not the acts, but breaks in the story, yes. Is there a chance, Mario, that Rushmore is actually a kind of meta expression of Max's dream life versus a movie that's happening in real time? Are we seeing... Oh, man, are we doing one of these hypothetical... I'm just asking. Are we seeing a kind of expression of what Max would like his life to be like, as opposed to what Max's life is really like. No, I, I, I think we're, we're seeing potentially the framing of a narrative through the eyes of somebody like Max, but everything is happening as we see it, but it's clean divisions or it's neat framing choices or it's neat filmmaking choices or possibly through the eyes of your very biased narrator. I think all these things are happening, but it's, I mean, as Wes Anderson said, like there, a lot of this was autobiographical. Mm-hmm. He had at an early age, he had to kind of like worry about being accepted by his peers. Like Max does the opening scene is Max solving that complicated equation and everyone well, that's uh, where hoisting I, him up. Right. And you in know, slow motion. Yeah, exactly. Wes Anderson said that he had like a, an attraction to a much older woman during this age. And so, yeah, obviously these things are kind of framed from the perversion, not, you know, in, in the sense 
of and the bias of Max, but I think they're happening. And I, right. and I think that's why it's framed as kind of a very real narrative with these whimsical kind of. Well, motions. that's I mean, I, so my my thinking about this, I think I agree with you, but I also think there's something you're fucking right. You do. I, I think there's something there in the sense that, you know, there's a slow motion in the beginning when he solves a math problem. There's a slow motion. The three famous slow motion shots are the slow motion of, um, you know, him solving the problem. There's a slow motion with the bees when he gets off the elevator. Putting the gum on the wall. And there's a slow motion of him and Miss Cross dancing at the end of the movie. I would also point to the perfection of Max's, the continued evolution and perfection of Max's productions of his plays with his Serpico at Rushmore and then his, um, whatever the name of his World War II movie was. Oh, uh, Vietnam. Or Vietnam movie, or play was. Um, Platoon-esque. It, that it gets really elaborate and really perfect. Um, I don't know. It struck me as like, oh, are we, seeing, are we seeing something inside of his head instead of something that's actually existing? And the fact that it ends so perfectly where he has this girlfriend um, – but he also gets to dance with Miss Cross at the end of the movie. No, but you see, know what I mean? here's here's my counter and yeah, my yeah, pushback yeah. to that is the fact that the play is more perfect because he focuses more on it. The big thing about this is he's a smart sure, yeah, yeah. he's a smart student. Like Guggenheim mentions that you know, Guggenheim kind of infers that he's he's an intelligent student, he just fucking wears himself really thin. Do you know they mention that in the conversation? And then he doesn't, on, he doesn't focus he doesn't himself focus on, anything. on anything. He just spreads himself thin. Yeah. And near the end, he has like a couple of select things he's doing. He gets a C minus on that on that test. Yeah, but that's excited. that's shown as like an, a vast improvement. Is the fact that he's he's growing, um, and I think the play is an example of that. In fact, that he's starting to focus in on his loves. He's focusing on the things that are truly dear to him, and like he's a very an imaginative child. He has these kind of like thoughts and ideations of what his life could be. And that's kind of very much told in like a theater sort of way Mm -hmm. in the sense of, you know, somebody with a very highly creative kind of mindset would be driven to that. And he's focusing all that energy, not so much now in his life, but in his work. And then that dance I think is done in slow motion because of the fact that when they're dancing together, when him and cross are dancing, they're, they're still like, distance between them it's like two friends dancing and it's framed by kind of everyone doing their own sort of dance but there's a lot of adultness to their dance and the fact that you know that's when he's finally taking off the glasses cross has that little smirk on her face for the first time she's not kind of seeing him in this kind of like handout way but kind of now seeing him growing in, mm-hmm. a, in a sense almost. well that's i mean I've, I've got an article in front of me that says um by deanna creasel that was published in mosaic um that Ooh, kind of talks about mosaic um the idea that the movie's really about Max's working through of his edible complex and like the end of the movie is kind of, and I'm, you know, I'm not going to go into it because I rolled my eyes so much (laughs) that they're downstairs. Um, But I just, I wonder if edible complex, where exactly does he want to fuck his mother instead of just like impress his mother in this? Because he wants to fuck Miss Cross and Miss Cross is his mother. Miss Miss Cross, the attractive 30 something, I mean, let's... He's only 15. Okay, yeah. Uh, that's fine. But Seymour Castle is like... Did you fucking see Olivia 60s. Williams in this movie? I saw her, yeah. And let's not kid ourselves. 
There's no fucking ethical complex there. It's it's Olivia Williams in her mid thirties being Olivia Williams. But this is so. This is like I just was pointing that out to you. Um, you also mentioned something about the like the idea of the narrator in this movie before, and this kind of speaks to the idea of something that I think is or the Royal Tenenbaums is a perfection of the ideas that are coming through in Rushmore, in the sense that the narrator is semi ambiguous in Rushmore, to me anyway. Yeah, so like he, there's there's definitely some omniscience in he rem- what the narrator sees, even though there's a lot of bias. But they, but they, so there's there's omniscience. It's like a floating narrator. But there's omniscience and there's bias, which speaks to my idea that this is somehow a Max, a, a, a Max, another uh, Max we- Fisher production. But in Royal Tenenbaums, he removes any of that kind of pseudo um, interiority. By uh, from one of the characters by having the Alec Baldwin actual narrator, where he's narrating a story that these characters exist in. So in the Royal Ten and in Rushmore, they're both R movies. I think that's what's confusing me. Um, in Rushmore, you don't have that. So you have all these devices. You have all these narrative devices where you have the plot points, you have the captions, you have all this stuff, um, and the only line through the whole thing is is Max, and you have even all these directorial, um, you know, cinema moves like slow motion. Um, but there's not a, there's not, the only adherent, the only through voice is, is Max, where the through voice in Royal Tenenbaums is the omniscient narrator who was never seen and who was only... I think we could say you know Rushmore I mean? has a floating narrator. Maybe, maybe, maybe it floats between Herman. and I'm Max. literally just throwing it out there. No, I, I, I can see what you're saying. I just don't. I think it's bullshit. I think it's nonsense. I think, I think it's going back to your point of maybe an imperfect filmmaker still finding his voice, still finding ways of telling a story, and maybe not being able to narratively create that cohesion. But I think he does so in such a way where it's okay. I'm gonna be honest with you. I. Want. But the Oedipal Complex, she can go fuck herself. I'll give it to you. You could read it. Um, I don't want to read that. I want to like I ag- burn that. I agree with you, and I because I want to agree with you. I like this movie because of all the things that we said about it. That it's not a uh, um, a directorial it's, it's not a William Hurt Gina Davis picture. <laughs> no, it's definitely not that. Um, Fuck its, you, Lord. <laughs> um, the idea that Wes Anderson isn't inflicting some kind of um, screenwriterly control over it and directorial control over it, where he's trying to make some kind of weird metafiction, that he's literally just dumping all of his ideas of what would be cool in a movie into a movie, and it's just the movie. Yeah. I hope that that's it. I'm just kind of. I'm, I'm pointing out things that I noticed, as I was watching this again. Um, I think, no, I'm just throwing it out. I'm just throwing it out there. The idea that there's is there something more going on, like lo- noticing all these kind of directorial choices. Is he trying to make a a broader statement than here's just everything I've been thinking about? Kind of how you s- talk to about the idea that this is semi autobiographical. Yeah, is he trying to in um, inflict on his autobiography some of his idea, like film ideas, 
which is what I hope it is. Right, which is what I think it turns into a little bit a little bit later with the Royal Tenenbaums. Speaking to that, and to bring it all back home, we're having this conversation. And there's a lot of directors in the late 90s who we would not have this conversation about. No. And, you know, I, I keep repeating this, but he opened up doorways. And that is why it's my number 93. Is, is It is a movie of its time, of its time that is very important and fundamental to my vision of film and, and how I saw film and how I saw storytelling in the media. You know, this is one of those movies that stands as a cornerstone to film. And that's why it's there on my list, 93. And the last Wes Anderson movie that's going to show up on my list. We'll talk about Wes Anderson one more time. But not for a long time. Not for a long time. Long time. I don't think he has a movie coming out anytime soon, so. I mean, he, oh, God, oh, God he did Isle of Dogs in March. Wow, talk about a forgettable fucking movie, huh? Isle of Dogs. Why? Well, you like, saw Isle of Dogs, right? No, because I, I don't give a shit. It's bad. Well, like it's this, bad. I'm, I'm going to say that. It's not good. So here's the thing about Wes Anderson in using songs, and I'll, you know, just to wrap and, and our And our conversation of Rushmore's over. Now we're just now we're just going to talk rest. No, we know. We can keep recording this, but we're, okay. we're just now just talking about modern Wes Anderson. So the idea, like, that... It's the last moment of real joy. So he's got two moments of joy to end his, attend his movies. He has this one with the, the Faces song. But then the other moment oh, wow. of joy is from Fantastic Mr. Fox with the... Oh, um, yeah. yeah, where everyone's dancing. Let her dance. Yeah. Is, you know, it's just like genius. There's like nothing like it yeah. in movies. He doesn't, there's no one that captures that joy. Of making a movie. Because Fantastic Mr. Fox is pretty good. I love Fantastic Mr. Fox. Yeah, that's pretty good. Nah. I just, it doesn't feel like a Wes Anderson movie. Well, you know what the problem is with Fantastic Mr. Fox? That I watched it with my kids for the first... The only time George I saw... George Clooney's the problem with that movie. I think he's the best thing of that movie. Really? I think George Clooney's too George Clooney. Oh, no. I think he's perfect as George Clooney. Hmm. But I watched it with my kids, so it's... I, it's, I can't... Do they like it? They did like it, but I can't speak to its actual quality because it made my kids happy. No, I think it's pretty good. So that's the only thing that matters. No, it's pretty good. It is pretty good. It's just... I think I hadn't seen it after I'd seen a bunch of other West Aaron stuff. And I, I tried to like convince myself I like Dirgeeling Limited. It's right there. I, I'm going to be honest with you. Limited is We've right there. had conversations where Dirgeeling Limited was your favorite Wes Anderson movie. Yeah, then I rewatched it again. <laughs> like, no, that's not right. All right. So thank you for listening. Um, go to pivotalfilm.com to see a list of the beers we drank or the movies that are on our list. Guys, guys, Mario's guys, got something to say. You better listen. Guys, 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 I did it. I finally, after six or seven episodes, was like, oh, fuck, I guess we're okay enough now. Okay being the key word with quotation marks. Very wide, large quotation marks. We now have a Twitter. <laughs> And an Instagram. What's the name of the Twitter again? And a Facebook. Uh, you can do find we have us. a Facebook? Oh, yeah, we do have Facebook. You can find us at Pivotal Film on Facebook and Instagram. And <laughs> you can find us at, at Film Pivotal on Twitter. Because Twitter's awesome. Yeah. Bringing back Twitter. We you, love Twitter. Yeah, we love Twitter. Yeah, so at Pivotal Film, Instagram, and Facebook. Film Pivotal. Film Pivotal at Twitter. You know what? Honestly, you fucking put Pivotal <laughs> Film in your Google search bar or Bing or 
You know what? I'll put a link to it on our website. So go to pivotalfilm.com and you can either subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or you can follow Podcast us on Twitter or any of your or you can or pre- yeah, preferred choices. Exactly. Or you can um, you know, listen on SoundCloud. Um, the fall movie season people. We're going to watch movies. We're going to watch a lot of movies. A lot of them. Every we're going to try to do um, our A blocks are going to be new movie reviews mostly every week. We have it actually blocked out. We have a lot of movies coming up. Yep. Really good ones. So we Probably s- some ones we don't want to see, but we're going to see anyway. We're going to see them anyway. We're going to see them for you. Because we love you people. Yeah. Even though we call you motherfuckers every week, we yep. call you that with the most endearing of tones. Yeah. I, I call people I don't like friends. <laughs> <laughs> he does. It's he true. does. He calls me his friend all the time. <laughs> so, um, you know, go see a movie, then drink a beer, and uh, we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening.